Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Seabish Show. I'm your host, Colin Bish. Welcome everyone to episode three of the Seabish Show. I'm very excited for this one. There's a lot to go over, a lot to talk about. It's been a whole bunch of news in just like what three days, four days feels like. It's just been a crazy, crazy time in sports um, from Saturday to Sunday to even now when I'm recording this at like what 10 at night. Um, but I'm still here. I'm still trying to make this episode for you guys. And before I get into the news and reviewing everything, I just did want to tell you guys, again, thank you for all the support that you guys have all been showing for me. Um, I could, I, This show couldn't be what it is. Although it's very small, I'm hoping it could get bigger and bigger as it goes on. Um, if this show wouldn't be for me... Um, what it is now without any of you guys while I'm the one you know making the notes and recording and you could say I'm the one putting in the work but it's you guys who make this show truly explode in popularity as it is well most would consider a popularity because of small um because of smaller like numbers compared to other podcasts but to me, this means everything. The support you guys are showing, listening in, and listening to what I have to say. It, it means everything to me. You guys have no idea. I, it, I could say this over and over again for like the next 20 episodes, and it still ring true. You guys, me, you guys listening means so much to me. You guys supporting is just so so much it keeps this podcast afloat it keeps me uh, it keeps me afloat and fills me with the energy and passion to to continually take notes and to bring these sports news and my opinions to you guys every single monday and friday and i can't thank you all enough for that and with that being said um we're gonna get right into the big news um reported by adam schefter on espn um Aaron Rodgers is finally on the move, and yes, he is a New York Jet as the Green Bay Packers traded Aaron Rodgers, former four-time MVP, to the New York Jets. The trade details are as goes. The Jets received Aaron Rodgers and the 15th overall pick in this upcoming draft. The Packers received the 13th pick, 42nd pick, and 207th pick all in this upcoming draft they also received a 2024 second round pick that could become a first round pick if aaron Rodgers were to play 65 percent of his snaps uh there have been people saying like the packers got fleeced in this deal and i just don't see it whatsoever i think both teams i think both teams won this trade uh the jets were very thin at qb they had lost mike way and they and it, it, it was kind of obvious to me that they really had no faith in zach wilson the roster didn't really have faith in Zach Wilson. I mean, if uh, Ahmad Gardner or Sauce Gardner, whoever you want to call him, I like to call him Ahmad Gardner, but you can call him Sauce if you want. But Ahmad Gardner, if him burning the cheese head and trying to recruit Aaron Rodgers along with his teammates didn't prove to you that um, the Jets had no faith in Zach Wilson, then I don't know what did or what proved it to you because it's obvious that they just don't. And they and, and people have, and that's a bit interesting because it's like oh they just don't like their teammate but you know what teams you know that don't have a QB right now would that or solid QB play right now would want Aaron Rodgers and will want to recruit Aaron Rodgers I'm telling you a lot of teams would do that because of the play he brings um, and that's the big plus in this um, trade is that they got now the Jets are going to have consistent quarterback play is Aaron Rodgers aging yes. But he's a much better player, and he probably—I feel like he has a little more in the tank than we're expecting. 
um, this coming season. And not only that, but the weapons he has around him, like Brees Hall, the young stud running back from Iowa State that was killing it last year before he went down with an injury. Garrett Wilson was very impressive. Um among others and they can and they can continue to build through that through the draft especially when they just retain their 15th pick one of their biggest issues the past season that wasn't just quarterback play and lack of offense was their lack of consistent offensive line play and i feel like makai becton is going to have a big season this year however being able to, to retain the 15th pick is huge for them because they still have that opportunity to take a offensive tackle that they've been so continuously mocked to draft like a Broderick Jones or a Paris Johnson or a Darnell Wright who and we'll get to that and how I perceive it but it, it, this was very big for the Jets they got their quarterback that they wanted and they were able to retain a first round pick to be able to you know do whatever with it you know draft a tackle which they're probably going to do to uh protect aaron Rodgers, or they could give him another weapon but i think the route is to take an offensive tackle or just an offensive lineman in general to shore up the offensive line as for the packers this you know frees them from the whole aaron Rodgers situation this finally allows them to move on with jordan love as the full-time starter not only that they also moved up in the draft a little bit which I think making the prospect of getting a pretty a good receiver at that point or anybody in that situation to build up their roster to help surround Jordan Love with pieces is there. And they also got the second round pick this year, which is big, uh, 207th pick. And they also got a second round pick next year that could turn into a first round pick. Um, so for those saying that the Packers got fleeced, I don't see it. I think both teams were very even um, in this trade. I like both. I like what both teams did. I think it's good for both of them. Um, and uh, I did have to switch up my picks a little bit because of this trade, but nothing really changed. Just the positioning. So, but but I'll get to that. But overall, it was it was definitely a big thing that happened, and it was very interesting for sure. But uh, contrary to what most people believe, I think it's a win win for both squads. Moving on to basketball, uh, there was also a big uh, headline that came out today. As the Houston Rockets have their head coach of the future, they were uh, able to hire former Celtics head, head coach Amy Odoka. Uh, reports were saying that Rockets general manager Raphael Stone was able to sell Udoka on the future of the Rockets. He was able to just tell him about like, um, like the young talent we got here, probably guys like uh, Jalen Green and Alfred Segun and uh, Kevin Porter Jr. They got a lot of good young guys there. They just need the right leadership, and I'll get to that. Um, they got a lot of salary cap space. There's a lot of rumors that James Harden might, might, might want to go back to Houston um, this upcoming offseason, you know, depending on what happens in the playoffs. Even if Philadelphia wins the championship, which could definitely happen, you know, it's still a big possibility that James Harden might want to leave and go back to Houston. And not only that, they do have a very good chance at the number one pick and the ability to draft one of the best pros basketball prospects that has ever come out in the NBA draft, Victor Wambanyama. So, I mean, if I was a coach, I'm, I'd get sold on that. You know, a lot of young talent that needs leadership, a lot of salary cap space, and the ability to get one of the most uber-athletic, uber-talented basketball prospects in history. I, I think it's good. I think it's good for Udoka. Um, one thing that is 
the one thing that's always been clear about M.A. Udoka is that he's always been a good leader and he shores up a locker room. And that was a huge issue this past season for the Rockets with their former head coach, Steven Silas, who just never seemed to be able to connect with his players, never be never seemed to be able to um, assume leadership. And it just showed on the, on the court when... Uh, they went out there looking like they were playing like an AAU team, having Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. Uh, chucking up a bunch of shots and having Alfred and Shagun just kind of stand there and do nothing. Although uh, Shagun was absolutely phenomenal this season for what he was given. I think a guy like Udoka definitely gives them a better chance to sure everything up and have them play like actual basketball. Cause this, because AAU tournaments are fun. Yes, they're fun, and they produce highlights and all that, but I just don't believe AAU is true basketball. It's it, it, it's very – AAU basketball is so much different pro from professional basketball. It's about the same difference between high school basketball as it is to professional basketball. And it's – I just think that that's that was the Rockets' biggest problem is that they just didn't play like an NBA team. They were playing like an AAU team. And – Silas was never able to control that team and assume leadership, but Udoka certainly can. And it's not just his leadership that's big, it's also his coaching ability that's big too. Because in his only season as Celtics head coach, his very first season as Celtics head coach, he took that team to the NBA Finals behind a top 10 offense by a top, behind a top 10 offense and the number one defensive team in the NBA that season. The dude's a great coach. And yes, he had had he had his issues. He had that big fallout with the Celtics that led to his departure. And there's been there's been other guys or other um, positions that he's vied for, such as when Steve Nash got fired by the Nets early in the season, they were looking at him, but the Nets decided to um, they decided to um, promote Jack Vaughn to the head coach and eventually give the full-time job to him. There was talks about, I talked about it on the last episode, There's there was a possibility that Toronto, the Toronto Raptors could have gotten him. But uh, Houston Rockets end up getting a very good coach. And yes, that pass does loom large, but they are reporting right now that they went over his past. Um, the Rockets were able to communicate with both the Celtics and the NBA on the situation. And when they got all the when they got all that information, they were able to make the decision like, okay, I've, we feel like he's really improved, and um, he's you know, like yes, the situation is bad and it, it, it is damaging, but he we feel like he's the guy for us. We feel like he's changed from then. And I, I mean, I think it's a good move because um, Udoka's um, leadership was such a huge vocal point in the Celtics finals run and not just um, not just his leadership, but his coaching style is super impressive, too. And um, he was able to command such a great defense in that team. And to, and he it's kind of similar Although I don't want to make the comparison from like Tatum and Brown to Porter Jr. and Green, it it, it can be inferred if you wish to. I, I mean, but I, I think that it's a really good I think it's a really good move for the Houston Rockets. It gives them a good leading a good leader at the helm to be able to control these guys and set up a good squad. And the the offers still there. They got a ton of salary cap space to go and sign guys. Uh, you know James Harden. I don't know if it happens, but other than that, if they don't sign James Harden, they still got calories. They still got sal. 
say calorie, not calories, but they got salary cap to be able to go out and get guys. And they also have the chance at getting Victor Wembanyama at number one. There's a lot to be excited about in Houston right now. And I and, I, and with Udoka, no matter if they get Wembanyama or not, no matter if they get James Harden or not, I think that their team is definitely looking up for the future. I think they could definitely make some improvements going into next season. But now we're going to get into playoffs. Because, oh, playoff basketball, it giveth and it taketh, saith the Lord, or whatever. <laughs> um, but first off, on Saturday, without Joel Embiid, the Sixers were able to take care of business versus the Nets in Game 4. They completed the sweep in a 96-88 win. Uh, Tyrese Maxey really struggled, as did James Harden. However, Tobias Harris was able to... Um, take the reins as he scored 25 points and 12 rebounds and or not 12 rebounds he can't score rebounds but great game for Tobias Harris and Paul Reed was able to step in f into the starting lineup for the injured for the injured Joel Embiid and grab 15 boards including eight offensive boards to help out the Sixers Nick's, Nick Claxton had a double double and four blocks for the Nets uh, as for the Sixers, Embiid's status is going to be very key going into the next round, especially against the Celtics. Um, if the Celtics were to advance, which looks highly probable as of right now, we'll get to that. Um, and as for the Nets, it's been a very turbulent season for them, but I like their future. Um, when Mikal Bridges came over in that trade, he was fantastic. And a good offseason could, could really solidify them as a consistent playoff team before they get to that level of being a finals contender they're gonna have to work out their forward issue they just have so many forwards on that team they're obviously gonna want to keep cam johnson and mccall bridges and you know some people consider cam johnson a shooting guards but regardless of that you got dorian finney smith who was really bad um after the trade for the nets royce o'neal was okay uh joe harris was you know Joe Harris, he just kind of came off the bench, hit some threes. But one of the guys that's very going to be very important in this offseason is um, Yuta Watanabe, who prior to his injury, he was, I believe, leading the league in three-point percentage. The dude was hitting insane amount of threes. And I think that like they're just going to need to sure up that whole position because like they don't have a lot of size like nick claxton is really their only big guy that they got they're going to need to get probably another center um to back up claxton and they're probably going to have to let go of some guys before position made maybe dfs maybe o'neill who knows though i think the lone bright spot of this whole entire net season was 100 percent the head coach jacques vaughn he i believe truly he is the right guy for the job he worked with a poor start to the season, Kevin Durant's injury, Kyrie's off-the-court issues, both of their eventual departures, and he still took the Nets to the NBA playoffs. And you can make the argument, oh, they were already set up to go to the playoffs. Yeah, sure. But, to eat, but you know, most teams that are set up to the playoffs and they just end up collapsing, they fall out of the playoff scene entirely. He was able to keep them afloat for as long as he did and eventually get them to the playoffs although they did get swept um though it was against a very much more talented team i believe if you surround vaughn with a complete team and um you get more you get more size um specifically a guy to back up claxton you sure up the forward issue um probably get a better guard than spencer dinwiddie i think they could do better than that and the nets could be sleepers in um in the east next year 
However, Sixers moving on. Nets are going home. In the next game, uh, Kevin Durant led the Suns to a 1-12-100 victory in Game 4. Phoenix leads the series 3-1. Kevin Durant scored 31 points and notched 11 boards and 6 assists, while Devin Booker added 39, or 30 points, excuse me, 9 boards and 7 assists. Westbrook had an incredible performance with 37 points and 6 rebounds. However, Norman Powell and Marcus Morris both struggled in the starting role. And it's just like, when you look at the game, the Suns just shot much more efficiently than the Clippers did. They shot much less threes, but they were, but they were able to make a better percentage. Um, the Suns were able to out-rebound the Clippers, plus they were able to get to the foul line more and got more free throw opportunities. I, like, this whole series, to me, comes down to Kawhi Leonard. And it makes me think of what Stephen A. Smith said about Kawhi Leonard on a segment of First Take. He said, um, and bear with me, he said that Kawhi Leonard is probably one of the worst superstars in the NBA right now. Not because of his skill. Yeah, we know his skill. Kawhi Leonard is incredibly skilled. But he said that he's one of the worst superstars in the NBA because you are unable to rely on him in big games and big moments. Well, I wouldn't say big moments, but if he's hurt and you're if he's hurt and you need him to like push through and come back, like he's really not going to be there. And it, it, that point is furthered by the announcement earlier today that Kawhi Leonard was going to be out for game three against or game five against the Suns. So like it, it does Stephen A make some crazy points. Sure. Everybody does. But is he does he have a point with Kawhi? He for sure does because with Kawhi, the Clippers were able to take a one to one a one to one tied series back to Phoenix, right? And they and if Kawhi played those two games, it could be a different series right now. However, Kawhi not being there, Paul George not being there, the Clippers have no chance. Despite Westbrook's incredible performances, like it doesn't matter. Because when it comes down to it, the Kawhi impacts the game defensively against guys who are great scorers like Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. When Kawhi's not there, they lack defense. They lack a good or they lack a good defensive presence. And Devin Booker was and Devin Booker and Kevin Durant were able to capitalize on that. They absolutely shredded the Clippers offensively in LA, like. It's it, it, it like, yeah, Stephen A has bad takes, as I said, but he looks really, really right on this take right now. Because as of right now, it really feels like the Clippers are relying on Kawhi Leonard to, to really be the superstar that they signed him for to help them win a big series, to advance the playoffs, and he's letting them down. He's just not showing up for them. They are not they can't rely on him because he's not playing. And Paul George was out from the get-go. So can you put blame on him? No, because he was because they announced like, yeah, he's not going to be able to play the first the first series or the yeah the first series. But Kawhi was there from the get-go, and he got hurt. And there probably was a and game three, sure he could have sat out, rest of the injury. But game four and game five, if he's ready to go, if he's good, he could get back in there. But it's obvious that he a the injury is so bad that he don't wants to that or he doesn't want to. God, my grammar was bad right there. Or b 
he's just he just doesn't want to because he doesn't want to and that's infuriate as a clippers fan well i'm not a clippers fan but if you're a clippers fan that's infuriating and with with Kawhi out uh of game five it definitely looks like the suns are going to close out this series likely going to advance the second round uh we will see what happens between the nuggets and Timberwolves in game five though i feel like the nuggets will win that likely to get a nuggets and suns matchup in round two moving back to the east however um the heat crushed uh um a Giannis list bucks team uh Giannis was out for game three though i believe they tied the series um I, I, I don't want to hang on that because the last I checked before I turned off my phone, the Bucks were up 12 in the fourth. Um, but in this game, the Heat were able to cross the Bucks 121 to 99. Jimmy Butler had 30 in that game. The Heat shot 49% from three, 54% overall, uh, um, led by Duncan Robinson's five threes off the bench. He had a great game. Uh, fortunately, for the Heat, their bench took a huge hit as Victor Oladipo tore his patellar tendon in his left knee in the fourth quarter. That's probably coming back to bite them right now if their bench is getting outplayed as we speak or if their bench got outplayed. I don't know if the game ended. I, I really don't care. I'm just, I'm going right now. But once again, like in this game, the lack of Giannis reared its ugly head as the Bucks were out-rebounded and outscored in the paint. And it gave the Heat the series lead. However, if the Bucks were able to win this game and the scorecard shows differently, if the Bucks were able to out-rebound and outscore in the paint the Heat, then, you know, that's the story. As long as Giannis is there and he's and he his presence is there alone in the paint, it's gonna be the difference maker in this series. Because in the past three games, especially in games one and two, or games one and three, the Bucks absolutely dominant or this heat absolutely i i don't know i'm all over the place i apologize guys but the heat, the heat were absolutely dominating the bucks on in the paint and on the glass and Giannis is such a huge factor for the bucks team because he he almost is their paint and glass presence so if the bucks were able to come back and tie the series uh going to game five then and if the scorecard shows correctly, if the Bucks out-rebounded the Heat and if they outscored the Heat in the paint, you'll know. And the final game of the Saturday slate, a very, very heated game in this one. Uh, though the Lakers were able to dominate the first quarter and take the series lead versus the Memphis Grizzlies by a score of 111-101. Anthony Davis had an incredible performance with 31-17 rebounds and two blocks. LeBron added 25 points. Rui Hachimura continues to be great off the bench for the Lakers. He's, he's had 15 points in every game so far, and he's continuing to hit threes which is something that Ruby Hachimura doesn't do a lot of. He does not consistently hit threes. But his three-point shot has been much better in the playoffs so far. Uh, John Morant was able to come back too. Uh, and he looked great in his first game back. He had a near triple-double. He had 45 points, 9 rebounds, 13 assists, including 6 threes. Uh, a very scary fall in game one led to a, a wrist injury, I believe, for John Morant. He missed game two. Um, Memphis was able. Memphis was able to win game two, though, without him. Um, but um, Morant comes back, plays well, but the Grizzlies come up short. 
And you could say, like, oh, that, that, that's on him. Like, the Grizzlies play better without Ja, which, by the way, is a lie. No team plays better without their superstar. Um, though they can, but not to an extent when they have the superstar with him. Th- that's just a, that's just a stupid thing that I can't stand. Like, oh, this uh, X team plays better when X superstar is out. It's, it's a lie. It could go for, like, a few games. For, 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 like, a whole month stretch, no chance. No, it wasn't John Morant that was the issue. I feel like the issue was just, A, the Lakers just came out with much more energy than the Grizzlies did because of one guy. And you probably know who I'm talking about, but one guy stirred the pot, um, and, he, and he got burned, and that was Dylan Brooks. And that one, one term in my head comes to mind whenever I think about what happened to Dylan Brooks in game three, um, between game one or game two and the, and afterwards of game three is you reap what you sow, which basically means that future events are shaped by what you do now. Dylan Brooks talks a lot of crap, says to LeBron, oh, he's old. I wish I could guard younger Braun and not this Braun because this Braun's old and I don't respect him because he doesn't give me 40. I don't respect anybody until they give me 40. He was just rapping a whole lot. And and you do that, bro, you better be ready for what's coming in game three. And it's obvious that he wasn't. You you go, you talk trash, you better be ready to back it up. This is what guys like... Like, people say, like, oh, people don't like it when Luca and Book do it. I do. Because you talk trash and you're able to back it up. You talk as much trash as you want. You do that. Heck, even, heck, even, um, like, notorious pests like Dennis Rodman and Draymond Green have been known. Like, they have the accolades and also some skill to back it up. But Dylan Brooks doesn't have anything to back it up. He shot 3 of 13 in the first half. And and though he played good defense, and that's what he's really known for is playing good defense, he just he, he did not shoot well. He was taking bad shots, as he always does. It always feels like he's taking really bad shots throughout the game. And into, like, a few seconds into the third quarter, he checks, Bron, or checks LeBron in the groin, and they eject him for a flagrant two. Now... Here's my opinion on that. I don't think it's a flagrant two. I don't think it was in. I don't think it was like, like, like. Uh, what 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 do they say about it? It's like excessive. I don't think it was excessive. I think it was incidental. But uh, Dylan Brooks came out and said, like after the game when he got ejected when he played poorly, he said, "I ain't talking." That's literally what he said. From like, like I heard this from uh, ESPN's Tim McMahon. He said, "I ain't talking." And then afterwards, he says, oh, that ejected was fueled by uh, this villain perception from the fans, from the media, that I only got ejected because I'm perceived as a villain. Just stop. The lack of responsibility, the lack of, uh, the lack of just owning up to you just getting, just, just getting owned um, when you talk trash and you didn't back it up, the lack of accountability for that is insane. And this is why... Like, this is why I respect players who talk trash more, like Kobe. When Kobe was an insane trash talker. Kevin Garnett was an absolute monstrous trash talker. Like, my, like, whenever I think of Kevin Garnett trash talking, I think of him telling Tim Duncan Happy Mother's Day when his mother died, and I think of him calling Charlie Villanueva a cancer patient. Like, 
I don't even know if I call that trash talking. I call that straight up. That That's just like straight up wrong. But you think of like guys that are good trash talkers like Kobe. Kobe was an incredible trash talker. Like he was trash talking um, Luis Scola in Spanish in the Olympics. And other trash talkers like Devin Booker and Luka Doncic today. Those guys are able to back it up. And as I said before, Dennis Rodman and Draymond Green, notorious pests, they're able to back it up because they win a lot and they have some skill to back it up. Pa- um, Dylan Brooks is in the boat of Patrick Beverly. Like, doesn't have a lot of accolades, doesn't have a lot of skill to back it up. But even Patrick Beverly has accomplished more than Dylan Brooks has. I think that um, Patrick Beverly has all, uh, NBA all-defensive team. Dylan Brooks doesn't have anything. Which is wild. And at least when it seems like Patrick Beverly talks trash, like when things don't go his way, he owns up to it. He's like, yeah, I get. He's like, yeah, and move on. And he doesn't change who he is. He doesn't change his energy. He's never changed his energy. He's never trash talked, get humbled, and then like say, like, mm, yeah, I ain't talking. No, I continue to talk. He always talks because it's Patrick Beverly. But. Dylan Brooks is just a pest that can't take the heat. That's how I see it. This dude talked a whole bunch of trash, um, saying LeBron's old and the, the Grizz are gonna win the series, and I don't respect anybody till give them till they give me forty. Like LeBron, yeah, he didn't have forty, but he didn't need forty. All he needed was a dominant first quarter from his team and just and a win and a series lead. And then afterwards, when you get humbled. And you play poorly and you get ejected. Instead of taking responsibility and accountability for your actions and your poor play, you just say, I'm not talking. Then you come out the next day and you say, oh, yeah, it's it's not my fault I got ejected for checking a guy's nuts. Uh, It's the media's fault. It's the fans' fault. Stop it. I'm not buying that for a second. I mean... It's just, it's just wild. Like, people say, like, Dylan Brooks is good for the NBA. I guess. Because, like, there's not a guy, I don't think, who... that Because they were saying before, like, oh, he accepts he accepts the villain role. I mean, would a villain, would a villain like, go back on his word? And just, like, w- think about it like this, right? If we're thinking in a villain sense, if the Joker failed to beat the Batman, is he just going to be like, you know what? screw this and just leave gotham no he's gonna try again he's gonna keep doing he's gonna keep poking batman like over and over again like (laughs) i'm gonna get you or whatever the joker will do but dylan brooks is just not a villain he's just a pest he's just a pest and he's not a good player enough he's not good enough to even back up his trash talk he's just a straight up pest he's i don't want to say he's a less talented patrick beverly but I'm definitely thinking it right now. I'm definitely thinking it right now. But, I mean, this whole talk about Dylan Brooks is just me taking away from talking about the Lakers. Who, by the way, like, when the Lake, when, I just want to say, when Anthony Davis is clicking, the Lakers are unstoppable. You look at the performance that Anthony Davis had in game one. Not crazy, but really good. Game two, he, he played bad and the Lakers lost. Game three, he was dominant and they won the game. I truly believe that Anthony Davis is so huge in this series. And his play, his play is so, so big to this team. And his success is going to be 
a very big measurement in how far the Lakers get into the playoffs if they're able to make it past the Grizzlies. You know, they go to the next round if they face, you know, depending on who they face, they might have to face the upstart Sacramento Kings. They may have to face the defending champs, Golden State Warriors. Who knows? It's going to be, but overall, I do believe that Anthony Davis's um, play is going to be very big in this series. And I also think that Rui Hachimura's continued success will be big as well. He's been on fire so far in the playoffs. Um, he's not necessarily going, known as a good three-point shooter. However, he's leveled up his three-point shooting in this playoffs. If he continues to shoot the three at a good rate, and if he continues to just score at a, at a good rate as well, if he just continues to score and hit threes, then the Lakers are going to have a chance every single night on top of um, Anthony Davis playing well. I don't, and like, obviously, yes, LeBron is a huge factor too. However, I think it, you could definitely see that LeBron is taking a step back to allow his teammates to have better chances because that was what Dylan Brooks, Dylan Brooks is trying to do. He's trying to get in his head because he's trying to make LeBron be the focal point when LeBron's biggest attribute is being able to work everybody else into the game, right? And... Like, and, like, yeah, LeBron has a good enough um, ability himself to take over a game. However, he's trying to get his teammates involved, too, particularly Anthony Davis. If he, if you know, if the thought process of Dylan Brooks is, like, if I take him, if I take him away from focusing on his teammates and focusing on me, we have a better chance at winning. However, this is LeBron. This, like, I think he said this before. This isn't my first rodeo. I've been here before. I've dealt with pests. Like, I know what to do. And so, yes, LeBron, he's still going to be big in the series, not because of his scoring ability, rather of his ability to make plays for others on the Lakers. Anthony Davis's continued amazing play is going to be big as well, along with Rui Hachimura's success on the bench. Moving on to the... Moving on to the Sunday slate, the first game of the Sunday slate at one. Knicks pull out of game four with a 102-93 win over the Cavs, taking a 3-1 lead. And that hurts my heart. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, this happened and this happened and blah, blah, blah. You just got to give credit where credit is due. As a Cavs fan, I just got to acknowledge that the Knicks are absolutely outplaying the Cleveland Cavaliers. Like, it, it, it is, the, um, pre, is the premature celebrations kind of annoying? guess but anybody would be but anybody would be hype if you could win a 3-1 3-1 not a guarantee but it's big you know um but like as a Cavs fan i just got to recognize that the knicks are absolutely playing incredible ball right now rj barrett had a great game despite going over six from three he made clutch baskets down the stretch he finished with 26 points jalen brunson has been absolutely on fire for new york he added 29 and uh, both those guys, R.J. Barrett and Jalen Brunson, picked up the slack for a slumping Julius Randle. He didn't really have a good game. Um, but, however, Jalen Brunson and R.J. Barrett had incredibly clutch shots down the stretch. Um, it wasn't clutch was Donovan Mitchell. He missed really big shots uh, down the stretch. And the Cavs right now are really struggling in the clutch. Um, biggest takeaway for me like, is how New York, particularly Randall and Mitchell Robinson, it's just the front court in general have just dominated the glass in this series. When you got, excuse me, when you got one of the best um, centers in the NBA in Jared Allen, and you have the Defensive Player of the Year candidate in Evan Mobley, and Julius Randall, Mitchell Robinson, and that whole um, 
Nick's front court, including including Obi Toppin and Isaiah Hartenstein, have been just dominating the glass for the Knicks this series. That's been my key takeaway from this series is that they have just been that the the Cavs have just been totally outplayed on the glass, and they have no answers for them. The Knicks have just cleaned the glass offense, cleaned the offensive glass. And the more they get offensive point, uh, rebounds, the more they get, the more chances they get. And it's it's just hurting the Cavs over and over and over again. And I'm not gonna sit here and say like, oh, they're they're losing because this or losing because this or if if Mitchell did this, the Knicks are just outplaying the Cavs. Simple as that. It's just simple as that. Hurts my heart, but you nope, know, the Knicks are just outplaying the Cavs right now. Is the series over? No, I'm hoping the Cavs can at least make a comeback and you know win it three one or come back down from three one. However. You know, even if they do take Game 5 in Cleveland, going back to MSG for an, a, probably a raucous crowd in MSG, if that were to happen, you know, it'd be very tough. And even Game Seven's no guarantee because the Knicks were able to take Game 1 in Cleveland. Heck, Game 5 isn't even a guarantee. We'll see what happens, though. I hope the Cavs can come through. But if they don't, you know, it is what it is. Uh, moving on, the Warriors were able to survive Game 4 and tie the series uh 126 125 over the sacramento kings uh harrison barnes missed a game winning three which i didn't like i felt like the king should have took it took taken it to the basket it's 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 a miracle that the kings even got that opportunity considering curry called a timeout with none left and that result on a technical um however despite that blunder uh steph curry had an incredible game scoring 32 uh, Clay Thompson added 26 on top of that, including a buzzer-beating three at the end of the third quarter. Jordan Poole finally had a good playoff performance. He had 22 as a starter for the Warriors as Draymond Green returned off the bench. And and, and he had a good game. Uh, uh, Kevon Looney had another great performance. Uh, he didn't score a lot of points, but he just made good plays. And the plays that allowed the... Uh, the Warriors to win. De'Aaron Fox scored 38. He had a lot of big shots, and like it really sucks because De'Aaron Fox um, is ha, was announced that he will be out of the game for Game Five, and that really sucks because De'Aaron Fox has been so much fun to watch in this NBA playoffs. He's easily been one of he's easily been one of the most improved players in the league, and he heck he's been like this, you know. It's just that the Kings had not had a level of success for a while. And people feel like, like, oh, if they get a lot of success, then it won't be because of him. But it is because of him. And he differentiates from a guy like Colin Sexton. You know, people thought like, oh, once they, once they get um, once they get talent, uh, they won't really, you know, Fox will just decline. But he hasn't. Fox has been their focal point. Compared to Colin Sexton, when the Cleveland Cavaliers were really bad for a stretch, he was great. But as soon as they started to improve, he just, you know, he just slumped and eventually got traded to this Jazz for Mitchell. Uh, but De'Aaron Fox, nonetheless, has been incredible. Keegan Murray had a really good game as well. Um, his first really big game of the playoffs because in the first three games, he had like under 10. And in this game, he had 23 and five threes. Um, however, De'Aaron Fox's injury will be very big for the Sacramento Kings in game five. It's going to give the Warriors a lot of breathing room. Consider, like, they got a ton of momentum. They got Draymond Green back. Um, 
They've won two in a row going into game five. They're, it's going to be a raucous crowd in Sacramento. And like they're going to have to deal with that. They've been bad on the road all season. They're going to have to overcome that and be able to win the game um, the, and take advantage of De'Aaron Fox not being there. Uh, second to last game of the um, weekend slate, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown combined for 62 to give the Celtics a 129-121 to win in Game 4. They take a 3-1 series late. Both players had 31. Derek White had 18. Mark Smart had 19. Robert Williams had 13 points and 15 rebounds. Like, all those guys played incredibly well. Heck, even Al Horford, he didn't even score a point. I think he only attempted, like, one or two shots. He, he had a good game, too. He, he got boards. He made assists. Like, uh, everything was clicking for the Celtics. They hit shots at a much more efficient clip. The Celtics did. Um, they had a 51% field goal percentage to 44%. Uh, additionally, the Celtics dominated the paint and fast break opportunities. As for the Hawks, Trey Young came up big but was not able to cash in the win as he had 35 points and 15 assists. DeAndre Hunter had 27, and DeJounte Murray had 23. Speaking of DeJounte Murray, uh, he's currently under investigation and actually was suspended by the NBA for an altercation with a referee at the end of the game. If you saw the video, it looks like he bumps his head or like he headbutts the referee and then points at him, like saying something to him. And... Now that he's suspended, like, that's so huge. That's a huge loss for the Hawks. And I get it. You're frustrated. And, it, it like, it doesn't work out. But you just can't make mistakes like that. You literally just can't. That costs your team huge. It doesn't just cost you an opportunity. It costs your whole team an opportunity. DeJounte Murray has been so big for the Hawks this season and just threw it away like that. You know, obviously the Hawks still have a chance in Game 5. But it's going to be a very bleak chance now that DeJounte Murray isn't playing because of a bonehead decision that he made. The final game of the weekend uh, ended with Anthony Edwards coming up clutch and staving off elimination from the of the Timberwolves as, they, as Anthony Edwards scored 34 and hit big shots in overtime to help lead Minnesota to a win. Towns only took nine field goals the entire game and played 36 minutes. Uh, his play is really worrying me as of right now. It really is. Carl Anthony Towns has just not been good in these playoffs. He's been getting outplayed defensively. He ha he's had poor offensive performances. It just does not look like he's there. Um, Gobert finally had a decent performance with 14 points, 15 boards, and key offensive rebounds as well. Um, Jamal Murray Jamal Murray had a poor game. However. Uh, the Nuggets were mainly picked up by Nikola Jokic, who had an absolutely monstrous performance, scoring 43, getting 11 boards, and had a six assists, but it was not enough for the Denver Nuggets. Minnesota finally took advantage of the paint over Denver. Like, in the past three games, the biggest deficiency in those games was the Nuggets' absolute dominance over Denver, or the, the Nuggets' absolute dominance over the Timberwolves in the paint. The Nuggets were abs the Nuggets were out rebounded and they and both teams were tied in points in the paint. And that was super big for the Timberwolves in this win. That's Dave off elimination. It also didn't help for the Nuggets that they shot poorly from three. They only hit about 34% of their shots from beyond the arc compared to Minnesota's 38%. However, Anthony Edwards has like 
his performance in the playoffs so far has really proven to me that this kid is is stepping up to be a star in the NBA. He has a he has a just straight up um ability to just come up clutch for his team, which is so big. It's just a shame that the Timberwolves are a messy organization and they can't seem to get anything right. However, as of it stands right now, Anthony Edwards came up big for the Timberwolves and they are going back to Denver for game five, trying to stave off elimination there. And that rounds out basketball. Moving on to hockey, there was a ton of it was a ton of games um, to go over this past weekend. Very, very fun. Um, the Islanders and Hurricanes had two games over the past weekend. Islanders were able to save off a 3-0 deficit against the Carolina Hurricanes in Game 3. However, the Hurricanes would rebound in Game 4. They would take a 3-1 series lead. In Game 3, scoring began with Casey Sezikas. I, I have their pronunciations in here. I'll get them. Don't worry. And uh, Jesper Foss was able to tie the game 1-1 going to the third. The Islanders were able to score two goals within a minute, and they took a 3-1 lead before Kyle Palmieri, or behind Kyle Palmieri and Matt Martin. And in the third period, I, I actually made a mistake back there. I said going to the third. I meant going to the second. My bad. Or maybe, I, or maybe I'm right. I, I forget. I'm, I apologize, guys. But the uh, Islanders were able to put the were able to put Game Three out of reach from goals by Scott Mayfield and Anders Lee. Going to Game Four, scoring began about four minutes in as the Hurricanes took a 1-0 lead behind Seth Jarvis's power play goal. Canes padded their lead in the second with goals from their two top scorers, Martin Nachos and Sebastian Ajo. Uh, Seth Jarvis made it 4-0 less than two minutes into the third period before the Islanders finally scored with Alan, Adam Pilek. Mc, Mackenzie McEachern made it 5-1 while Bo, Hovat score, or Bo Horvat scored, although the game was pretty much out of reach, and the Hurricanes are up 3-1 going back to Carolina. It has honestly been a very fun series between both these teams. Um... Uh, but, however, my biggest concern with the Islanders is their lack of offense, and it has come to bite them in many ways. Um, and while, uh, and while offense uh, has, while like the Islanders have been able to have better offensive performances than um, the Hurricanes at the, at times, they just have not been. Ilya Sorokin has really struggled to help this team. Um, like survive the offense as you guys remember um the islanders were up 3-2 in game two however the hurricanes were able to tie it and then win it in overtime and the, the offense and uh the goaltending was really was just really bad at game four and right now the series is looking very bleak for the hurricanes uh, Boston was able to rebound versus the Panthers, Panthers taking a 2-1 series lead uh, in Game 3 with a 4-2 victory. The offense exploded in Game 4, and Linus, uh, Linus Olmark's dominant game pushed Boston to a 3-1 lead. Game 3 scoring started almost instantly as Taylor Hall made it 1-0 Bruins. Going into the second period, Charlie Coyle added to their lead. And in the third period, David Pasternak and Nick Foligno added a goal each, making it four nothing Bruins. While Gustav Forsling and Sam Reinhardt added to their lead, or excuse me, scored goals for the Panthers, but the game was out of reach. Going to Game Four, the first period ended with a with Boston cashing in on a power play with Brad Marchand, making it one nothing Bruins. Jake DeBrusque added another goal to make it two nothing, while Matthew Kachuk responded to make it two one, headed to the third. 
In the third, Tyler Bertuzzi scored uh, to make it a two-goal lead once again. However, Florida was able to respond with the Sam Bennett power play goal before Boston scored three straight off of another DeBrusque goal and two Taylor Hall goals. As the series has been, like I've been, the, I've been pretty much watching it the whole time because Boston's my team, so I'm gonna pay attention to it. But this has been a very physical series, and Game Four was no different. The series, like Olmark and Kacha got into a scrum, which led to Olmark being kicked off the ice. But in that game, Linus Olmark was an absolute monster. 41 saves and a 950 and a 95% save percentage for the Vizena Trophy finalist. Will certainly be a finalist, if not the winner. But yeah, it was. It's this has been such a very fun series to watch. Not just because the Bruins are winning, but overall, it's been a very physical series. And this is what playoff hockey is all about. It's gonna give you that big physical edge. And the Florida Panthers are known for being a very physical team. It's been no different with the Boston Bruins. However, Boston's just been so incredible this season, and they are continuing that play in the playoffs. And they're going back to Boston with a three-one series lead. We take it now to Minnesota as the Wild were able to take a series lead versus the Stars with a 5-1 win in Game 3. However, Dallas was able to survive a Game 4 and tie the series behind Tyler Sagan's two goals. In Game 3, the Wild took a 1-0 lead into the second period off of a goal by Matsukarello. Marcus Johansson added a goal to make it 2-0 before Luke Glendening had the Wild lead 2-1. While going into the third, Marcus Foligno made it 3-1 with a goal. Matt Zuccarello scored his second goal of the night to make it 4-1 before an empty net goal from Ryan Hartman put the game out of reach. Wild would win 5-1. They would take a 2-1 series lead. Going to Game 4 on Sunday, after a quiet first period, the scoring began The scoring began with a Tyler Sagan power play goal, and the game went 1-0 Dallas into the third. Evgeny Dadanov increased the Stars' lead to 2-0 before John Klingberg cut the lead to 2-1. Sagan scored an, another goal to make it 3-1. And while Frederick Goudreau scored on a late power play goal, the Stars were able to survive and tie this back and forth series. Me personally, I feel like this, like I said, like I'm not watching much um, series so far, like in hockey. However, this series between the Stars and the Wild has been absolutely, it's been absolute fireworks. There was the game one overtime win for the Wild, the absolute the absolute offensive explosion in game two with Rupe Hintz netting a hat trick. And then in game three, it was a really fun game for the wild and a a game that four that went down the stretch and the stars were able to survive back and forth, back and forth. It's been a very, very fun series between the stars and the wilds. And finally, the final stretch of two game recaps, we have the Kings and the Oilers as the Kings were able to overcome two Connor McDavid goals, defeating the Oilers 3-2 in overtime to take a 2-1 series lead in game three. However, the Oilers would make an insane comeback in game four to win 5-4 in LA to tie the series headed back to Edmonton. In Game 3, scoring began with an Alex Ayafalo goal to make it one nothing Kings going to the second. However, Connor McDavid, the hopeful Hart Trophy winner, would score two consecutive power play goals to give the Oilers lead before entering Kempe, tied it on a power play goal. It was 2-2 headed to the third. A scoreless through period would give way to overtime, where Trevor Moore cashed in on the power play to give the Kings the win and the series lead. The next night, Kings came out firing uh, off of the Game 3 win, taking a 3-0 lead in the first behind goals from Gabriel Velarde, Victor Arvidsson, and Ante Kopitar. Edmonton responded in a big way in the second. They would tie the game 3-3 behind goals from Evan Bouchard and two from Leon Dreisaitl. 
and Kings would regain the lead in the third period via Matt Roy, but Evander Kane would net a clutch goal to tie the game. In overtime, the goal scorer, the previous goal scorer, is goal scorer in the first in the second period. Evan Bouchard once again made an impact as his pass would set up Zach Hyman for the game winner, completing the comeback. The Oilers would tie it. The Oilers would win the game and tie the series 2-2, headed back to Canada. This series has also been incredibly fun. It's been very surprising for me. I didn't think like the Kings had a had just had consistent. Um, like a consistent roster to be able to compete with the Oilers who are have been dominant all season. However, the Kings are really surprising me so far. And just as the Kings were able to mount a comeback in game one, the excuse me, the Oilers were able to mount a comeback in game four. This has also been a very fun series, back and forth, very fun to watch. And game five is gonna be a really good one. Moving on to Sunday slate, I believe. Winnipeg um, was down and out going into the third period. However, a 3-0 third period tied the game versus the Golden Knights. However, Vegas was able to win and take the series lead in double overtime. The first period began with two Knights goals via Chandler Stevenson and Jack Eichel. Buffalo fans, close your ears at that. I apologize. However, going into the second, Kyle Connor would have the lead 2-1 for the Jets. Vegas would add on two more in the second behind another Jack Eichel power play goal and a goal from Keegan Colsar. Winnipeg then came back from the depths of defeat, first with Nito Niederreiter, then by Mark Shifley, and tying the game via Adam Lowry 4-4 going to overtime. The first overtime would go by scoreless. However, the Knights would quickly cash in double overtime as Michael Amadio scored to get the Knights the win and the series lead. This has been a very surprising series for me personally because I said that the Golden Knights would win handedly um, but because of the Jets' lack of offense. However, the Jets have been an incredibly efficient team offensively, much more than they were in the regular season. Game one, they shock uh, everybody and win Five to one. Uh, next game, they score two and give up five. It happens. Then game three, it looks like they're dead in the water, down four one, and then they net three in the fourth to tie the game. However, they came up short and the Knights take the lead. Though it's this, though this series has been shocking for me, it's been fun, nonetheless. Back to the Eastern Conference, uh, the Maple Leafs picked up a huge road win in overtime versus Lightning, take the series lead. The scoring would begin in full force of the first period as Nola Achari scored to make it 1-0 Toronto. Anthony Sorelli tied it. Austin Matthews gave the Leafs the lead again 2-1. Then Brandon Hagel tied it 2-2 going to the second period. Tampa would take their first lead of the night in the second from Darren Radish. Toronto will go on to tie it in the third with a minute to go from Ryan O'Reilly. The Leafs and Lightning would go back and forth in a tight overtime. However, with about 45 seconds to go, Morgan Riley netted a overtime winner to give Toronto the win. It was a gutsy, gutsy win from the Toronto Maple Leafs. They needed that win badly, and I think they were, I, the last time I checked, they were down 4-1. <clears throat> Excuse me. The last time I checked, they were down 4-1. Uh, in game four, but that win was huge. If they had lost that game, then lost this one tonight, they would go back to Toronto down 3-1 against a very dangerous team in the Lightning, but that win was very big. Even if Toronto was not able to win tonight, um, Toronto still is going back to Toronto. Uh, the Maple Leafs are still going back to Toronto with the series tied, with the ability to, uh, with the ability to take the lead and hopefully, you know, um, you know, win the series in game six or albeit game seven. 
Moving on to the second to last game of this hockey slate, the Devils were able to stay alive in the playoff, defeating the Rangers 2-1 in overtime. And I did check this earlier, the Devils were able to tie the series. They were able to win 3-1 in overtime. Or not overtime, well, he can't score two goals in overtime. But they were able to win 3-1 and tie the series heading back to New Jersey. Uh, however, in Game 3, the Rangers took a, the lead in the second with Chris Kreider's fifth playoff goal. But Devils young star Jack Hughes responded in, in the power play to tie the game. A quiet third period would go to overtime, where Dougie Hamilton would score an OT to keep New Jersey alive. And as I said, the Devils actually won Game 4, I believe. And the series is now tied after the Rangers had beaten the um, Devils twice in home ice. The series looked bleak going back to um, New York. However, the Devils, a very young team, came out firing, came out hot. And their goaltending has been incredible in this pat in these past two games. They've only given up a, a total of two goals in these past two games, in Game 3 and Game 4. Obviously, I, I didn't read to you guys Game 4. My apologies because it happened today. But still, very valiant performance from a very young Devils team, and this is and from a series I was thinking to be very bleak, considering what happened with the Rangers' first two wins. This has got all of a sudden. This has got very exciting. Water. <laughs> uh, final hockey game. Uh, final from the Sunday slate. Avalanche came out firing and took the series lead over the Kraken with a 6-4 Game 3 win. A fantastic atmosphere for the first hockey playoff game in Seattle in, like, 100 years. It was insane. But the game would get started with Jaden Schwartz uh, hitting, making a goal to make it 1-0 Kraken. But JT Comfort and Nathan McKinnon would add on two to give the Avs the lead going into the second. Cal McCarr would add to the lead in the second. Uh, to make a 3-1 ass. However, goals by Jamie Oleksiak and Matty Beneers tied the game headed to the third. Then in the third period, Colorado exploded with Miko Rantanen netting two and Nathan McKinnon adding another. Jaden Schwartz would score again. However, the game was pretty much out of reach for Seattle. Colorado was able to take the lead uh, or take the series lead. Yes, 2-1 to one off of a dominant offensive performance in game three. This has been a very interesting series so, so far. The games have been very close in Colorado. This this game in Seattle was a bit different. I want to see what happens um, in game four. You know, if Seattle is able to come back, tie the series. I felt like the Avalanche were able to... Um, I thought they were going to walk away with this pretty handedly against a very inexperienced playoff team. However, Seattle's been very competitive for um, how inexperienced they've been playoff-wise. Most of the players... And it's been a pretty good series. And that rounds out the hockey slate. Moving on to baseball, there was, a bu there was some pretty interesting stuff that happened. Um, particularly, Rangers outfielder Adolis Garcia dominated the athletics with an insane performance. Five hits and five at-bats, three home runs, eight RBIs. Absolutely masterclass performance by Adolis Garcia. And this is the type of like performance that I'm like talking about. Because I talked about Odolis Garcia in the last episode, how he's very hit and miss. This is pretty much it. He can either give you that type of performance and then go 0 for 4 the next night with like four strikeouts. That's that that's that's just Odolis Garcia. It's very interesting, though. Congrats to him. It was an incredible performance. Staying in the East, uh, 
Staying in, not the East, but the AL, however, Tampa Bay Rays set an MLB record for 21 consecutive games with a home run. They were able to walk off the White Sox in that game. Um, and they're like, what, 19-3, 20-3 right now? They've played incredible baseball, and it doesn't look like they're slowing down anytime soon. Uh, really bad news for the Los Angeles Angels. There's been a lot of talk about the Angels recently with, you know, there's been reports coming out um, saying that Shohei Otani might leave in free agency if the Angels miss the playoffs. And it's just not been a really good week for Angels fans, and it's gotten even worse. Um, rookie catcher Logan Ohapi is uh, expected to miss four to six months with a shoulder injury. Uh, if you guys remember, or if you baseball fans remember, um, Logan Ohapi was the big centerpiece in the Brandon Marsh trade that sent, <clears throat> excuse me, that sent, um, that sent Brandon Marsh to Philadelphia and brought Logan Ohapi to the Angels. And Logan Ohapi has been one of the most excited. He was one of the most exciting prospect catcher prospects in the minors. They called him up this season. He was playing pretty well prior to the injury, but this is a really big hit for the. Um, the angels and it just it just like really really hurts their catching even more now they have to rely on guys like chad wallach and matt thice just really bad really really bad um for the angels there i had to include this one because i'm a red sox fan and it made me happy um Red Sox were able to dominate the Milwaukee Brewers 12-5 to in a game. But the big story that came out of that game was the rookie from Japan, Masataka Yoshida, hitting two home runs in a single inning. Um, the, the inning would start off, I believe, with Yoshida hitting a home run to give the Red Sox the lead. And then it would circle all the way back to Masataka Yoshida with the bases loaded, and he was able to hit a grand slam. Gave him two home runs and five RBIs, all in a single inning. A crazy, crazy inning for Masataki Yoshida. And for a guy that's been struggling like he has, very, very good. And it's really and it, that, that can really help a guy's confidence like that. Especially, you know, I wouldn't say Yoshida is a younger player because he's had a lot of experience in Japan playing in the MPB, I believe. Or he may have played somewhere else, but I do believe he played in the NPB, which is the Nippon Professional Baseball League. Um, it's just basically the Japan's version of MLB. However, um, Yoshida came in. He was really struggling to hit the ball. But this performance could really, really help a young guy's confidence like that in the MLB. Um, although he's not that young. One thing that's really surprised me so far, and I mentioned it in my last episode when I was talking about them, was the Pirates. And I didn't really want to mention the Pirates. I was like, eh, you know, they're probably going to fall off a cliff. They really haven't hit that cliff yet. They have not. In fact, they're they're trending the cliff. They're climbing the cliff pretty damn well. Uh, Vince Velasquez struck out ten Reds over seven innings as the Pirates won two to nothing. They've won seven in a row and they sit atop the NL Central. They're sixteen and seven. They just recently gave their manager Der Derek Shelton a extension, and like, this is wild. This is honestly wild. Like, I, I didn't expect... Like, I said, like, yeah, they're going to hit that cliff. The Pirates must have heard that, and they're like, all right, let's 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 see if we can hit the ball over the cliff. Let's see if we can climb the cliff. Whatever. The Pirates have not hit that cliff yet. They've won seven in a row, and they've won three in a row since I said that. So, obviously, I'm wrong um, about, like, them... Well, I would say I'm wrong about them hitting the cliff right now. However, I think at some point, um, 
the Pirates will probably hit that cliff, to be honest with you. I just don't think they have the overall pitching and overall offense in general, overall team, to um, continually um, keep up with this. However, if I get proven wrong and like the Pirates are like atop the NL Central at the All-Star break, I'll admit I was wrong, all right? Um, but yeah, been a very, very, uh, very good season for the Pirates so far, and I definitely wanted to talk about that. Uh, what's really not been a good season fo- so far, the Oakland Athletics. If you guys didn't hear recently, um, the Oakland Athletics organization bought a strip of land in Las Vegas to start construction on a new uh, stadium, which basically, um, which basically almost guarantees that the Athletics are going to move to Las Vegas. I'm going to break this down for you guys. So basically, yes, the Athletics organization announced they bought a new plot of land in Lake Vegas to build a new stadium. Um, and basically, it, it's it's inevitable that the A's will move to Vegas. Uh, this project is, is expected to cost around $1.5 billion. And if the Athletics and the Nevada state government strike a public-private par- partnership in the upcoming Nevada Nevada legislation, Nevada legislature session in july the a's would then have to file for relocation with the major league baseball if commissioner manfred approves which is more than likely going to he's already spoke about how it's going to be a how he likes the prospect of baseball in vegas so that's a no doubter so when commissioner manfred approves the owners will have to organize the move and if all this is accomplished prior to january 24 the athletics, the athletics can start construction next year, and have their complete the move by about 2027. Um, athletics lease in Oakland ends in 2024. However, <coughs> excuse me. Athletics, the however, as I said, the athletics lease ends in 2024, which means the team may have to play in their AAA affiliate in 2025 and beyond. Which, ironically, Oakland's AAA affiliate is in Las Vegas. Though the Aviators will remain in Vegas, which is that is similar to how the Minnesota Twins AAA affiliate is located in St. Paul, and I do believe that the um, I do believe that the uh, Minnesota Twins stadium is located in St. Paul, and if it's not in St. Paul, it's definitely close by. MLB is going to be very high on getting the team to Vegas because, again, like. With Oakland, yes, there's history there. There's great fans. I get it. But right now, the prospect of baseball and any sports in Vegas as a whole, with how big Vegas has become in the past few years, it is such a much better prospect to head to Vegas and stay in Oakland. Because in my opinion, it, it's it's like it's more on the owner and the city than anything. They've never provided the Oakland Athletics with any resources to be able to build a new stadium because the stadium they literally they play in is literally a god. Can't say, can't swear, can't swear. But basically, the stadium they play in right now is a dump. It's an absolute dump. It's always, it's, it's been a dump for like a decade. And honestly, I feel this is like more on Oakland. I feel like a little bit, a little bit of it is on Oakland owner John Fisher. A lot of it has to do with um, um, the with the city of Oakland never giving them a chance to to give them a new plot of land to build an actual functioning baseball stadium in. However, Oakland o- Oakland owner John Fisher never even entertained building a private stadium 
which it, it's compared to a public built stadium which if you guys don't know what that is basically a private a private stadium is basically just a stadium like a sports facility that's built by private um by private investors or a private like group of investors it's how oracle park the um home ballpark of the giants who is literally across the bay was built it was built as a private um building um john fisher wanted it wanted to make it a new wanted to make a new stadium off of public funding which basically comes from the government and that you know where that comes from oakland people's tax dollars and that's just that's just dumb like it's no wonder that ace fans are pissed that that might be a swear but whatever uh they've been some of the most passionate fans in baseball history yes i said history they the the those oakland ace fans they love their ace but if the a's aren't gonna provide and be there for our fans and give them an actual like team to watch and be excited about what's the point of going to games what's the point you know they've seen great teams world series level teams and it just feels like ownership and the city itself is just giving up on them it like i truly believe that oakland can well I wouldn't say that because Oakland has so many issues in its own right. Great city, like legendary city, all that good stuff. But like right now, they are just in such a bad place. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's just, it sucks because the history that the athletics hold in Oakland is rich and it's great. But with the ownership, with ownership not siding with them <clears throat> and with, um, the city not providing for them they're just like it's the same thing with the raiders it's the same thing with the raiders the city didn't want to provide the oakland raiders with um anything for a new stadium because uh, because funny enough the raiders had us play in that same crap stadium that the athletics had to and it sucked and the uh, and the raiders never got never were able to get anything for a new plan or a new plot of land they weren't able to get never able to build anything for or never able to build a new stadium or anything um for their team which is why they left for vegas it's the same thing as the athletics they're not they're not getting any help from the city of oakland the um the owner doesn't want to doesn't want to take money out excuse me out of his own pockets to which he probably could to be honest he probably could take money out of his own pocket or he could get a group of other investors to be able to cut to, to be able to allocate money together to build a stadium but he's not going to do that he wants public funding so it's it's just a bad situation i feel for ace fans however this is good for vegas because people just say all the time, like, oh, Vegas doesn't have, you know, sports fans. Vegas is just, Vegas is just, it's full of, like, you know, these people and that, just gamblers. And blah, blah, blah. Vegas is actually a really good city, in my opinion. I think it's really good. Like, you want, case in point, look at Vegas Golden Knights. The Vegas Golden Knights in their very first season of NHL hockey were a straight-up success. And, heck, even 2021, the Raiders... In Vegas were a good success as well uh, 2022 kind of wasn't the same but but uh, the prospect of Vegas building up um, as a sports city people would just shut that down like no way nobody really like nobody really cares it, the, hey man they, they it sure look, looks like they do 
because the Raiders have had good attendance numbers. Vegas has been great. The, the, city, the city of Las Vegas loves the Golden Knights. And I'm sure that they pretty... I'm sure if, like... If they put out a good team for the athlete for the athletics when they got to Vegas, I think they'll go support too. Because if you're not gonna go, if you're not gonna put a good team out there, why would I go watch? If it feels like you're literally giving up on the team, be giving up on the fans, I'm not gonna go watch. The only reason that the athletics fans are watching right now is because their team is basically on the verge of 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 leaving before they didn't go because the athletics didn't provide them a good team to watch especially not last season. It's just a tough situation for Oakland. Although, I, I think it's a pretty good move for Vegas. I think it does bring um, the Athletics more attention than they've probably gotten in like the last you know few years. Because even in years where they were good, they were still like they were still lacking. Uh, well, I, I'd probably definitely say within like the last five or so years, they've really struggled in selling tickets. 2012, 2013, 2014 were... Definitely the golden ages of athletics baseball for um, Oakland. But, you know, after that, it's, it, it was really kind of bleak. So, yeah, as it stands, really bad for Oakland. Um, I feel really bad for them. You know, it just sucks. But, however, it's definitely a good prospect for, uh, the, for, for the city of Las Vegas. <clears throat> Moving on to combat sports, there's a couple of big things I want to talk about here before I got into my mock draft. Um, uh, UFC Fight Night took place. Um, there was a big heavyweight bout between number three, Sergei Pavlovich, and number four, Curtis Blades. Sergei Pavlovich was able to take care of Curtis Blades in one round. This is his sixth straight one, round one finish, and he was able to score a TKO victory over Curtis Blades, which right now sets up a possible title shot in the future. And... Man, Pavlovich has been an absolute monster. Ever since losing his debut to Alistair Overeem, the former U the former Russian heavyweight champ has been absolutely rolling through everybody. He's had he's on an 18 fight win streak as of right now, or or maybe it might be a little lower than that. But because as of right now, like um the because I I do remember the records are combined between like their former MMA experience and the UFC, but. Ever since losing his debut to Al Alistair Overeem, Pavlovich has been absolutely dominating. Right now, um, counting the Curtis Blades uh, finish, he's had six straight, as I said, six straight finishes in the first round, including a knockout in the first round of Tai Tuivasa, another ranked UFC heavyweight. And it definitely looks like he is the next guy up in the heavyweight division for sure. Um, we know the f maybe he faces Cyril Gaon, but we'll see how that goes. But depending on the future bout between um, John Jones and Stephen Miocic, which has been rumored for a while now, it's been rumored for UFC 290, which doesn't look like it's going to happen because John Jones wants to fight at MSG and UFC 290 is in Las Vegas. But it feels like eventually um, John Jones versus Stephen Miocic will happen. And, you know, to that point, you know. The fight, you know, maybe they make a fight between Sir, Cyril Gaon and Sergei Pavlovich. But I think right now, Sergei Pavlovich is very well set up for a um, future title shot at heavyweight. I mean, maybe he faces Cyril Gaon. But I think, you know, after the Jones, uh, you know, I, it, let's say it like this. If Jones and Miocic fought, Jones won. And if Gaon and Pavlovich fought and Pavlovich won, 
100% he deserves the title shot. I mean, even if Cyril Gaon beats Sergei Pavlovich, <clears throat> like, I don't even think then he's ready for John Jones after what happened to him in uh, two, uh, 283, I believe. I don't remember. It was 285. I don't know. But, yeah. Great performance by Sergei Pavlovich. Definitely, definitely excited um, to see this guy fight because he is – because when you get him in the ring, man, you're guaranteed – you're guaranteed a fight, a good one. Speaking of a good fight, like, oh, man. This Saturday was an abs- – it was a culmination of all of the incredible – of all of the buildup, of all the trash talk – Gervonta Tank Davis, King Ryan Garcia, that both both have stepped in the ring. And by the way, I'm just making a joke here, but the fight was over as soon as Gervonta Davis came out to Chief Keith live performing Love Sosa. I'm just being real. I'm just being real. Uh, well, I'm joking, obviously, but still. <laughs> um, but the super fight between Gervonta Davis and Ryan Garcia took place in Las Vegas. It was a very, very good fight. Um, even if we went seven rounds, Ryan Garcia came out very hot with the right hands and the hooks. Um, he definitely looked very overzealous in that fight. It looked like it, it felt like he was really going for the knockout, really going for the highlight in front of all the people and celebrities and stuff. However, um, <clears throat> however, uh, Gervonta was able to take advantage of Ryan's overaggressiveness, and he sat and he sat uh, Ryan Garcia with a big hook. That sent him to the ground in round two. However, Garcia would get up. He would recover well. And rounds three through six were back and forth. Really good action. Um, the, at that, at the point of the seventh round where the fight was stopped, I'll get to that. Um, Gervonta Davis was up on all of the scorecards. So he was winning very comfortably. Um, in round seven, Davis continually act, attacked the body throughout uh, of Ryan Garcia. And he was doing that throughout the fight. But Gervonta Davis really caught um, Ryan Garcia good with a monster left hook to the liver. And although it didn't look like it hurt Ryan Garcia at first, um, Garcia backed in the corner and he took a knee. He couldn't breathe and he couldn't get up for the 10 count. And Gervonta Davis had another knockout win. He is now 29-0 with 27 knockouts. Ryan Garcia suffers his first loss. Uh, he is now 23-1. But, like, I'm going to take a water break. Sorry, guys. Need as much water as I can right now. But yeah, this was a huge fight for both guys. Um, much respect to Ryan Garcia for going in there, you know, with that much um, with that much trash talk, that much hype. And putting on a, not a good performance, but a pretty good one for, you know, a guy who's like, you know, a kid who's 24. And obviously an incredible performance by Gervonta Davis. Um, he's he looks like a surefire the surefire face of boxing right now. Nobody's hotter than him at this point in time. Uh, and the story of this fight really was the fact that Gervonta Davis was continually going at Ryan Garcia's body. And in the seventh round, he was able to catch him with a really good left hook. And hey, if you, I'm just saying, like, it, it, if people think it doesn't hurt, if you get caught with a good hook to the liver, boy, it hurts. It hurts bad. Like, like just ask. I don't remember who it was, but I remember uh, Gennady Golovkin absolutely hit this guy in his liver 
with an absolute missile of a left hand or a right hand, whatever one, I don't remember what it was, and the dude slumped. Like, those body shots, a good one, a really good body shot, hurts you bad. And it definitely looked like it hurt Ryan Garcia there. Um, great fight, as I said. And I, I do feel like at this point, Gervonta Davis is the Gervonta Tank Davis. He's the face of boxing right now. Nobody, ha nobody's a bigger name right now than him. Though there probably better fights than him, and, and, and there's a there's probably a better fighter than him because there's a difference between being a name and being a better fighter. You know. And what I mean by that is people right now are calling for Javante Davis to have a super fight with current undisputed lightweight champion Devin Haney. And while I do feel like that is the fight to make, right now Devin Haney, who is 29-0 with 15 knockouts, um, right now he is set to defend his titles uh, May 20th in Las Vegas against former three-division weight champion uh, Vasily Lomachenko. And that's going to be a very interesting fight because this because Lomachenko is not only like people thought like oh he's fought, like he's only good at amateur boxing no Lomachenko is an absolute dog like this dude this dude like was off for a while and went to Ukraine to fight in a war and now he's coming back to fight for the undisputed lightweight champion of, championship of the world that is wild right Vasily Lomachenko is an absolute dog however. <clears throat> Devin Haney, he's just as much of a dog too. And it, I feel like if Devin Haney were to win this fight, then that would definitely set up um, the a fight between him and Gervonta Davis in the future. I mean, you could make the argument for Shakur Stevenson. Maybe Shakur Stevenson has a title eliminator fight with Gervonta Davis. Whoever wins that faces Devin Haney. So I think Gervonta uh, Davis is in a perfect position right now. He got a huge win um, in Las Vegas, a huge knockout win. It adds to his resume and definitely sets up a future fight between, could set up a future fight between him and Devin Haney. As for Ryan Garcia, he's announced his uh, intentions to move up to junior welterweight division, which is 140. There's many guys he can face. Um, the one guy I would suggest he face is there is um, a vacant championship or junior welterweight or super lightweight fight. I don't remember which one. Should have put it here. But there's a vacant WBA title fight between Ismael uh, Barroso and Rolando Romero. I think he should fight, you know, either one of those guys. You know, whoever wins that fight, he should go on to fight him. And people right now are, are calling for him to fight the winner between uh, current... Uh, current um, undisputed junior, I don't know if he's undisputed, but he's one of the best boxers of the world, Josh Taylor and Teofimo Lopez. Um, Taylor and Lopez are set to have a fight soon, but to throw Garcia to the Wolves like that, no shot. Um, Golden Boy Promotions would be absolutely foolish to do that uh, because Ryan Garcia, he's a 24-year-old kid. He's in his first big fight um, in Las Vegas, and he definitely looks super over aggressive um, in this fight, and that's and uh, and th that's the thing that is very um, that's the thing that's very big with boxing is you don't want to get over aggressive because if you get over aggressive, you get knocked out because because the, the the idea in boxing is to just box with the guy and just search for the knockout. You don't go hunting for it; you wait for it. You know. 
<clears throat> and Ryan Garcia was doing the opposite of that. He was hunting for the knockout. And because of his overaggressiveness, especially in the second round, he got caught and he got sat down. Round seven, he got a little overaggressive, he got caught, and he got knocked out. <clears throat> That's just something that he just can't do. And it would be stupid of Gold again, it would be really, really stupid of Golden Boy Promotions to put him against a guy like Teofilo Lopez or hell. You put him against Josh Taylor, and my god, it's gonna be an absolute murder in favor of Josh Taylor. I, I think the best fight for him right now is to await the winner of Ismael Barrasso and Rolando Romero. Then he fights them. Gains confidence in that division, continues to win, you know. Maybe that f eventual fight between Josh Taylor and Tiafimo Lopez comes to fruition. But um, overall, to recap... To recap that fight between Tank Davis and Ryan Garcia, very fun, very great atmosphere in Vegas. It was really, really fun. And boxing needs more of this, man. Boxing needs more of guys putting their their careers, their legacies on the line to just risk it all. Like, you know, these are legacy-defining, career-defining matches. Um, and there's there's future fights like this right now. You got uh, the aforementioned Josh Taylor versus Tiafimo Lopez fight. You got the aforementioned Devin Haney versus Loma fight. Heck, um, Canelo is set to fight soon against John Ryder. And there's been continually guys that they've been calling for this fight, like for fights over and over again. <clears throat> Terrence Crawford, uh, the undisputed um, the undisputed number one pound for pound boxer in the world. Um, They've been wanting him to fight Errol Spence Jr. forever. It's never happened. It hasn't happened. It doesn't look like it's going to happen for a while. They've got. They've been calling for Tyson Fury and Alexander Usyk to have a, um, to have a unification bout for the heavyweight championship of the world. Hasn't happened. It looked like it was going to happen, but it didn't. And now Tyson Fury is fighting Andy Ruiz Jr. It, it, it's just a mess. It, like boxing can sometimes be a really big mess, but. Javante Davis versus Ryan Garcia is a big proving point that these type of fights can happen in boxing and they can occur if they just work it out. And this is what boxing fans are looking for. Guys putting their legacies on the line to, to just see who's the best boxer. And th this is what they want to see with guys like Bud versus Spence. This is what they want to see with like Fury versus Usyk. This is what they want to see. Like, Guys putting everything on the line. And Davis and Garcia, they went out there and put everything on the line. And they definitely, and they definitely, definitely delivered. Garcia, uh, Garcia, he's got a lot of work to do, but I think he'll bounce back. And as for Javante Davis, he is on the top of the boxing world right now. Heck, that win probably sets him up for, you know, a fight with maybe Shakur Stevenson. And if he beats Shakur Stevenson, maybe he fights Devin Haney. Or maybe he just goes straight to Devin Haney. Who knows? But boxing is in a really good state right now. And, um, you know, for boxing fans, and I'm trying to get into boxing as it goes on. You know, very, very exciting times. All right. That rounds out the news, everybody. Um, but that is not the end of the podcast. Because today, I am bringing you guys a mock draft yes my own very own mock draft i am look i'm not gonna declare myself like todd mcshay or mel kuyper or whomever or lance Zerline or who I'm, I'm not gonna declare myself that this entire mock draft 
is basically just me saying that th this entire mock draft, okay, is just me saying, like, this is who I think that this team needs to pick based off of positional need, who I believe is who I believe they need in that position. So, the, the, with that out of the way, it's it's not a predictive mock draft. It's not like me looking at a team and like they're predicted to take this player. They've been talking with this player a lot. No, um, th there's not a lot of trade. There's only one trade. The only thing I'm basing this off of is pure positional fit, not scheme fit, not predictive positional fit. All right, now we got that out of the way. Let's get started. First overall pick, Carolina Panthers. The pick here is going to be QB, no matter what. The question is who the Panthers are going to draft. Um, my eyes, Bryce Young is the most complete quarterback prospect in this class. No doubt about it. I get it. The durability and size is an issue. I get it. I get it. Whatever. But everything that this guy checks, this guy checks off every box you wanted as a quarterback. He's calm on the field. He came up big in many fourth quarter situations. There was a play in the LSU game that I watched, and I saw that, and I'm like, dude, this guy is the number one pick. He is under pressure against LSU defenders, rolls to his right, evades the pressure, and throws across his body, throws a dime to Ja'Cory Brooks for the game-tying touchdown. And, like, you could say all you want about his size, his durability, whatever. You could say all you want, but most guys with better, with quote-unquote better size, um, of, like, of than Bryce Young... They don't make those plays. They don't have that pocket awareness. They can't make those throws on the run. Across, across the body. I don't know if it's across the body. I could be wrong about that. But guys that are bigger than um, Bryce Young don't make plays like that. And Bryce Young, like Alabama's system is made for quarterbacks to develop to become NFL-like player. Look at Mac Jones. Look at Mac Jones. Right? Look at Tua Tagovailoa. Look at Jalen Hurts. And, you, you know, Oklahoma fans can be like, oh, we claim Jalen Hurts. I don't, I don't care. You can both claim him. It's whatever. However, again, like everything you want in a quarterback, Bryce Young has it. Calm in the field. Big in fourth quarter situations. His eye, He uses his eyes to fool the secondary and make easier throws. Again, as I said before, he's got great pocket presence. He's good at sensing the rush and extending the play. He's, he's, everything he does is perfect. Despite his poor size, I have no issues with Bryce as a number one pick, and that's where I got him going to the Carolina Panthers. And this isn't to sound crazy, <clears throat> but he reminds me a lot of Drew Brees. I remember one of the Manning brothers, or maybe both of the Manning brothers, comparing him to Drew Brees. However, I remember listening recently to the Bootleg Football Podcast with uh, Brett Coleman and EJ Snyder. That's the Bootleg Football Podcast on Spotify. Go check it out. Um, especially for the um, Erie guys, anybody that's listening from Erie, they have an interview with Juice Scruggs, former Cathedral Prep player. Definitely want to listen to that soon. Um, they make they have a great podcast, very intellectual guys. I would definitely suggest you guys go check them out. Um, they talked about how Drew Brees used to be so good despite being so small and playing behind huge guards, right? Most of the guards he played behind in his career were Carl Nix, I believe, and Jari Evans. And they were like 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. And he was smaller than them, but was still able to make throws over the middle because he knew where to place the ball. He knew where the ball was going. And both um, Coleman and Snyder talked about how, like, Bryce Young does the same thing as Drew Brees does. And I agree with it. He knows exactly where to move the defense. He knows where to 
uh, put the ball for his receivers. And I have no question in my in my mind. I have no doubt that that the Car- the future of the Carolina Panthers runs through Bryce Young. Moving on to uh, the Houston Texans, they also have a need at quarterback. And while I think Edge is a more pressing need, and I wouldn't be mad if they took Will Anderson Jr. here, um, I wouldn't be mad if they had a QB here and they drafted an Edge at 12 or 33. I'll get that to la- I'll get that later. And I have them taking C.J. Stroud from Ohio State. Stroud has his issues mainly with cognitive and mental issues, just like, you know, and not like, oh, he's insane. Like, no, he just makes bad cognitive decisions. His physical talent at quarterback, though, is just insane. He's very aggressive with his throws, but he has a great arm. He's insanely, almost impossibly accurate. Places the ball exactly where it needs to go. And not only that, he's a great leader. Uh, There's been many stories about how this dude is one of the best leaders in college football and was fantastic. He was super mature and a great leader for the Ohio State team. My issues with him is is that as a quarterback... You're taught, you're taught your reads, right? So when a play develops, you have your one read. Like, let's say a guy runs a slant. But if that slant's not there, you go to your next read, which more than like, which maybe it's a hitch. And if that guy's open, you go, you make that read, you throw the ball there. Stroud has a tendency to focus on his first read and not progress to his next. That is very big in a quarterback. He doesn't really use his legs much, but that's really not big of an issue. You don't need really need to use your legs unless you absolutely have to. Though he does have issues feeling pressure, mainly his two games against Michigan, he was pressured a ton. In 2021 and 2022, he was pressured a ton. Um, but I have no issues with the Texans taking Stroud here. He's a fine prospect, and hopefully he's going to be the answer for the Texans at quarterback. Uh, contrary to co- contrary to popular belief, aka you, Griffin, because I know you're going to listen to this soon, Davis Mills is not the guy. All right, uh, I I do believe that the wide receiver class is a bit deeper though, so that they could take a wide receiver maybe at 12 or 33, and the edge class is decent enough to where they could take a guy at 33 or 12. You know, the Texans have a good Texans have a good spot here. Moving down to number three, the Arizona Cardinals. New head coach, Jonathan Gannon, he's got a lot to work with. You know, he's found himself, in my opinion, the worst situation in football. Kyler Murray's hurt. Uh, Buda Baker and and DeAndre Hopkins are likely to be traded. They have a weak roster, minimal health from ownership. They got a lot to fix. And being a defensive coordinator turned head coach, I think Gannon wants to start um, with the consensus best defensive player in the draft, that player being... Will Anderson Jr., the edge rusher from Alabama. Anderson is an absolute freak. He's dominated in three straight seasons for the Tide, and he was an absolute force the past two. Um, like, you have consideration as a defensive player for a Heisman. You're a freak of nature. All right? He has great build, and he has exceptional arm length. He's got amazing get-off speed. His first step is, absol- is ludicrously fast. He combines his hands and his hip flip to flatten the edge. He's got athleticism to use when play, when the play extends. So if the play goes out wide, he can just chase a guy out. And he's pretty fast to be able to chase a guy out like that and just catch him. And you're thinking like, who is this big dude that just caught me when he was in the pocket? That's kind of like that's kind of like what um, Will Anderson is. He's got a good change of direction because of his fluidity. 
My only problems with Will is that he needs a little, he's needs a more consistent motor, and he can also be challenged by tackles who move better than he can because he does have an issue with having stiff hips. Particularly, um, Tennessee offensive tackle Darnell Wright gave him problems in their past, in this past game, the 2022 game, the absolute firestorm uh, in against Tennessee. He's had some issues in the run game as well. But nonetheless, Will Anderson's quick... I think Jonathan Gannon could really sure up those issues. And Anderson's quickness and strength is very reminiscent to me of TJ Watt. I've heard this I've heard this before, and I really see it. They have um, very similar... They have very similar play styles. <clears throat> they have very similar builds. And I feel like the Cardinals could deal with his issues. And if, if, especially if they're getting a player that could be to the level of, you know, TJ Watt. So, I have Anderson going to the Arizona Cardinals. Next up, number four, the Indianapolis Colts. Um, this pick is also going to be 100% quarterback, just as the Carolina Panthers. Matt Ryan was released, and the Colts have, a, have all they really got left is Sam Ellinger. I have them taking uh, Florida quarterback Anthony Richardson. He's a great prospect, and he's got much work, much to work on. However, I have a ton of faith in Colts head coach Shane Steichen, who's the offensive coordinator of the Eagles. I think he's the right head coach for Anthony Richardson. He's taking raw quarterback talents like Justin Herbert when uh, Steichen was with the Chargers, and this past season with Jalen Hurts and made them into stars. He brought the best out of them, and I definitely think he could do the same with Richardson. Um, the former Florida Gator, he's got impeccable size, strength, and athleticism for a quarterback, like almost superhuman. He can work in many offensive schemes. He's got incredible arm strength to go deep, and he can hit tight windows. He's got great pocket awareness, and he got better as the season progressed. Over his last six games, I think six games, he had a 12-2 touchdown and interception ratio. Though, while he is very, while he is a very good prospect, he is, again, a prospect. He's a project. Um, Richardson's season was marred by inconsistent play. Like to begin this, even though he began this, like he ended the season strong, he did not begin the season well. Um, he has accuracy issues at times. He's got poor timing of progressions. Going back to the reads, like he'll usually make one read and then he won't go to the next. Um, he doesn't like to take sacks and instead throw the ball in dangerous situations, which I, I think it's the most. I think it's the most terrifying thing about a quarterback. If you have a quarterback that would rather not take a sack and just throw up the ball and, ha and have it possibly be intercepted, uh, a la Deshaun Kaiser. Um, but, like, it's just, it, it, that's very scary. But I feel that Shane Steichen is a good enough coach, and, well, definitely a good coach. And I think he's the right fit for Anthony Richardson to help stroke these issues. And he, I truly believe that he can bring the best out of Anthony Richardson. I think it's a good pick there. Moving on to number five, this would be the Denver Broncos pick, but the trade for Russell Wilson gives this pick to the Seattle Seahawks. And edge rusher is a pressing need for Seattle, for sure. But having lost Puna Ford and being very thin in the middle of their defensive line, I think they would definitely have no problems taking Jalen Carter right here. Um, and it would be huge for this team. He Jalen Carter is 100% my opinion, the most physically complete player in the draft. He was an absolute force at Georgia and probably has the best tape of any player this season. Probably has the best highlight too when he sacked Jaden Daniels, picked him up with one arm and hold up but one. Like, absolutely crazy. But regardless, Jalen Carter is an absolute freak. Quick off the snap and he hits the right gaps when the ball is snapped. 
accurate hand placement to be able to control guards, possesses a wide base and hip movement that kills double teams, and he has a nasty club move to get to the pocket, and his great leverage allows him to redirect when the play goes one way or the other. I don't see much issues in him, to be honest with you, except his mass. I would think he had to gain some more mass because he did struggled. Uh, he did struggle, not struggled, but he did struggle against um, larger guards such as Osiris Torrance from Florida. Um, however, I, they're saying like all oh, there's um, maturity issues there. I think maybe it could be an issue, but I think it um, with, but I think you know. Um, I think that culture in Seattle is good enough to where those issues can be fixed. I don't see it that big. And um, Carter would de definitely be a fantastic get and a day one impact player uh, for the Seattle defense. <clears throat> Moving to the number six spot, which would be the Los Angeles Rams pick. However, the trade for Matt, the Matt Stafford trade gives this pick to the Detroit Lions. Originally, I had them taking uh, Devon Witherspoon, a cornerback from Illinois, right here. However, I changed my I changed my draft picks a lot, and I ended up putting uh, Tyree Wilson here, edge rusher from Texas Tech. With the amount of picks that the Lions have in the first two rounds, this is really a this is really a really good chance for Detroit to cement themselves not just as playoff contenders because we know they're playoff contenders. They barely missed the playoffs this past season. And this is a chance to cement themselves as legitimate Super Bowl contenders. <clears throat> Excuse me. While the team make great strides in free agency, I think they're going to address the front seven mostly. Yeah, they've got great players there, particularly younger guys like Aiden Hutchinson, Malcolm Rodriguez, and James Houston. Those guys were all great. But their front line, their defensive line, could use some improvements that could be great for the team. Tyree Wilson is an exceptionally talented player who's gotten better since transferring to Texas Tech. He has incredible size. He's like 6'6", 275, and he can bring a lot to this team to add to its already formidable pass rush. He pass rush, excuse me. He can wreck the run with his size, and he can attack both the B gap and the edge. So I, I think Tyree Wilson's a good pick for the Lions right there. I, I mean, I mean. Um, I do believe, though, that Jalen Carter and Tyree Wilson are interchangeable here. I do know that the Seattle Seahawks like Tyree Wilson and the J and the Lions love Jalen Carter. So those picks could be interchangeable, but I think because of Seahawks, the Seahawks' incredibly incredible need for defensive tackle, they take Carter and then uh, the Lions would settle for Wilson. Well, not settle, but you get the point. Moving down to number seven, uh, the Las Vegas Raiders. Vegas had an interesting offseason. Derek Carr had left and Jimmy Garoppolo came in. They were frequently quiet throughout the free agency period and they moved on from Darren Waller as well. Despite the possibility of them drafting quarterback, Garoppolo is on a three-year deal, at least. So there's no need to draft like Will Levis or whomever may be here and not give them any experience for like three years. Like, uh, like would you really want to do a Jordan Love? Because I just don't think that's a good idea. You know, um, I, I think the Raiders are better holding that are betting are better holding off for the need of a quarterback for at least a year. Um, so, but I there's no really good inside linebacker to take here at number seven, with quarterback being being very thin. I f I like their pick right here to be the freakishly athletic Christian Gonzalez from Oregon. Um, teams salivate over quarterbacks with good cornerbacks with good size and. Um, Christian Gonzalez is 6'1", around 200, about 200 pounds. He's fast and athletic. He registered a 41 point. 
he registered we registered a 41 and a half inch vert and 11 11 one broad a jump at the combine i think he also ran like four five four four just wild um but other than the athleticism gonzalez is very fluid and quick for his size his length and strength allow for better press against receivers he can work off of blocks well and he matches releases well with his feet and hips <clears throat> Gonzalez has kind of had issues when it comes to tracking the ball downfield, but his size and aggressiveness at the line, I think it's hard to any, for anybody to get past him in general. And the Raiders have always, while I say that like I wouldn't try to make predictive picks, I, I, I do kind of keep it in mind. And the Raiders have always been, um, the Raiders have always been um, in love with freak, freak athletes. Like look at Jamarcus Russell. So I think that the I think that they would be fine taking Gonzalez here, especially when they have a pressing need for cornerback. Moving on to number eight, I got the Atlanta Hawks. This is where I had them taking Devon Witherspoon. I've had uh, edge rushers here at times, um, but I, I, you you could also make the cake for quarterback here. I mean, uh, I mean Atlanta moved on from Marcus Mariota, and while they have a need for a quarterback, it feels like they're going to try and move forward with Desmond, Desmond Ritter as the starter. And they're going to have Taylor Heineke back him up. In all honesty, they have much more needs at corner and even edge rusher. I get it. They have A.J. Terrell and they brought in Jeff Okuda. But the Falcons recently released Casey Hayward. After Okuda, they're pretty thin. So bringing in a feisty, monstrously dangerous corner like Devon Witherspoon will be huge for them. Um, and it's going to make, a as the Falcons have made, the secondary a focal point in the offseason when they brought in Jesse Bates. Witherspoon possesses incredible instinct. He broke up 14 passes last season and only allowed a catch rate of 35%. He's also a great in the run game, just as he's in man coverage. He's got ferocious physicality to make tackles downfield. His feistiness may be too much of an issue as he's had problems with biting on double moves and play actions, and he gets a little too handsy after five yards. But with a team that is um, fortified as secondary with Okuda and Bates, a player like Witherspoon would be the final bricks that the that would be put into the wall for the Falcons. Moving on to uh, number nine, the Chicago Bears. I didn't think the Bears had any intention to take a quarterback number one and move on from Justin Fields. I don't mean to be rude, but anyone who thought that was a possibility was fooling themselves. Fields had a great season and with minimal weapons. And he needed weapons and pieces. So after getting more picks and DJ Moore, it's time to address the offensive line. The best pick here for me is the Ohio State offensive tackle, Paris Johnson Jr., who was fantastic for Ohio State. His best trait is his versatility, where he can play, where he played left tackle, but he can also play right tackle. He could even play guard if they want him to. But I think um, the the Bears recently signed Nate Davis, I believe, from the Titans. So I think they're going to have him at right tackle because right tackle is kind of thin for them. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say they're going to um, put him at left tackle because I think they were comfortable with Braxton Jones, um, who was like a fourth-round rookie. at a solid season as Justin Fields' blindside protector. Johnson could fit in well at right tackle, though. He's got great feet movement and athletic ability. He would definitely be a day one impact guy for Chicago and would make Justin Fields' life a hell of a lot easier. This is where I have my one and only trade of the mock draft. I have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers trading up to number 10 with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, I would say that the Buccaneers would give them, at well, obviously their first round pick at 19, a second to third round pick, this year and maybe a first or second round pick in the next year maybe another pick 
But I have the Buccaneers trading up here, and they're going to take Will Levis from Kentucky. Uh, I have the Bucs getting the quarterback here in light of Brady's retirement. Levis is a big project quarterback, but I feel like they would be okay with their quarterback room. They could just start Baker Mayfield if they wanted to and keep off Levis for some time for him to learn. <clears throat> we all know Levis, right? He's got a great arm. He, and he has experience in the NFL-like system when he played at Kentucky. But this past season really kind of hurt his draft stock because he continually struggled throughout the season. He dealt with a lot of injuries too. So I'm not on, I'm not as high on him as I am with the other three guys. I do feel like Levis is a top five quarterback, and he's definitely number four. And man, you can make the case for him being three. But I definitely like I, he definitely has his upsides, and I think for a team like the Buccaneers, um, who do feel like they have a chance to compete. Um, this season, though they probably do want to see how to shore up their quarterback room. Um, you know, just have Baker Mayfield in there starting, and then you know see how Will Levis works. Moving on to number eleven, Tennessee Titans. Uh, their offensive line was an absolute mess, and you know they signed Andre Diller that helped. I they still need more, regardless. I have them taking a offensive lineman from Northwestern, Peter Skaronski. He's a very athletic offensive lineman based off of like the fact that he can play anywhere on the offensive line. He can play at left left tackle, left guard, right guard, right tackle, or even center. He can play anywhere. And, heck, he started most of his career as a left tackle at Northwestern. However, people are kind of worried about his smaller size and experience with other positions to play, to play guard or center because he's like 6'3", 6'4", which is kind of small for a tackle. So they'd want – they'd probably want somebody – so they probably want to put him in on the inside, which is all right. And I think it'd be very good for the Titans because their offensive line was an absolute mess this past season. Even And now that Nate Davis is gone, they really have a need for interior offensive linemen. So taking a very talented, very athletic guy like Skaronsky here, I think is a very, a very good choice for the Titans. <clears throat> I'll be excited about this pick if it was Cleveland's, but it's not. It is the Houston Texans pick due to the Deshaun Watson trade. Uh, but right here, I had the Houston Texans taking Lucas Van Ness from Iowa. I alluded to it earlier when I said that the, um, the Texans might take a receiver here. And if they drafted C.J. Stroud, I they probably would take Jackson Smith and Jigba right here. But I think but their edge rush was awful last season. And their edge rushes right now as it stands are 34-year-old Jerry Hughes, Jerry Hughes and uh, pretty bad Jonathan Greenard. Agbania Okorwankwa left for free agency. So I think that they need to address edge here while there's still good edge prospects on the board. But I think Van Ness is a really good pick here. You could make a, t a case for Miles Murphy, but I like Luke Lucas Van Ness. I think he's got great size at the edge right now, and he's only going to get larger. He's more of a projectable player, to be honest with you, than a guy who's going to come in and make an impact from day one. He, but his quickness and strength off the snap is going to help him in the NFL. You know, my issues with him is that he needs to develop a more very pass rush bag, and also use his hands more instead of just straight bull rushing. However, I feel like we're getting just a scrap of his potential at Iowa this past season. And when you've got a when you've got an incredible defensive line like D'Amico Ryan's as your head coach, he's going to certainly be at a he's certainly going to be top level very soon. Um, being coached by a guy like that. So I like this pick here. Moving down to number 13, which is where the Jets would be, but now it's the Packers. I have the Green Bay Packers taking 
wide receiver Jackson Smith and Jigba from Ohio State. Um, with Rodgers officially gone, this brings in the new era of Jordan Love. And while he has good we weapons already with Christian Watson, Romeo Dubs, or Dubs, I don't know how to say that last name. I think it's Dubs, but whatever. Uh, another weapon to help out the young, unproven quarterback wouldn't hurt, especially a dominant slot guy like Jackson Smith and Jigba. Uh, he missed most of this past season with hamstring issues. Smith and J Jigba flashed his insane catching ability in the 2021 season where he caught nearly 100, and he had an insane um, end-of-the-year performance, particularly he had a pretty – I think he had a pretty good game against Michigan, but I forget. That was like two years ago, almost two years ago. <clears throat> And he had an inc and he had a record-setting performance against Utah in the Rose Bowl that season, but you know there's questions concerning his speed and better tune to his route running, mainly his speed downfield. Uh, but utilizing JSN as a pure slot guy here and just giving just Jordan Love a guy that he can trust to just dump the ball off to when, pro when progressing from one read to the next and to the next, you find JSN open. You're like, oh, I'll just dump it off to him. Um, I think that it's a good choice for them right here. And I, I, I think I think it's just I think it just makes sense. And it would give the Packers an absolute deadly wide, young wide receiver trio. Next up at number 14, the New England Patriots. I have them taking cornerback Joey Porter Jr. from Penn State. Another physical large cornerback off the board here as the Pats look to shore up their secondary. They re-signed Jonathan Jones. They still have Jack Jones at corner. Uh, the rest of the secondary is a bit of a mess, to be honest with you. They signed they re-signed Jalen Mills, so, you know, take that as you will, I guess. But, <clears throat> you know, Porter's value as a guy who can lock down bigger receivers and press two or, or press or even cover two is really valuable. Um, he also has great use for uh, when his feet – he also has great hand use for when his feet don't help out. So Porter can be a very key asset on the Patriots' defense. I like this pick here for the Patriots. It feels like a, I don't know if it feels like a Bill Belichick type pick because I didn't make that type of pick. I made off a positional need. Uh, you could make the, uh, uh, people have made the argument for Ed Rusher, but with Matthew Judon still there and Josh Uche having a productive season, I don't see it. Moving down to 15 with the New York Jets. This was Green Bay's pick. Now it's the New York Jets pick. This pick doesn't change for me. It's still off of the tackle Broderick Jones. Um, with Rodgers coming in, it was very important that the um, Packers or the Jets at least kept their um, kept their guy on offense or kept or kept their first round pick so that they could draft a guy on the right side uh, at the tackle position because they already have Mackay Becton to protect Aaron Rodgers. Broderick Jones from Georgia certainly is the guy for that. Ultra athletic, great hand use, mix of strength. He could block in both power and zone. He controls his body well to adjust to moving defenders. Great recognition. He's got a lot of factors that you want in a, a left to right tackle in the NFL coming to the draft. However, my issues with him is like um is that he's a bit inexperienced. This was like his first full year starting. Um, although he played insanely well, but he's a little inexperienced. And one thing that really irks me as a former lineman, which, you know, as a guy who didn't even play past high school, telling this to a guy who's going to get drafted in the NFL, kind of a, you know, what move. But anyways, like, it's an issue because when he makes first contact, he has a tendency to duck his head. And if you ever played for Coach Sidetuck back at prep, 
you know that you know that ducking your head is like the eighth deadly sin like i'm serious you do not duck your head on first contact you are just absolutely beat when that happens so other than that um i feel like Broderick jones can work on that and he could be a very good high level starter for the jets Moving to number 16, I have the Washington Commanders taking tight end Dalton Kincaid out of Utah. Dalton Kincaid, um, in my opinion, he's the best tight end in this draft class. Um, he's a gr main. He's definitely the best receiving tight end. He's an incredible athlete, and he has great receiving ability. He's got really good speed for a tight end. Outstanding ball tracking with good hands. Though his only issues are really that he's a bad run blocker. He started off his base by good contact, and he could be more varied in routes. Um, but with the commander's incredible pressing need for um, a tight end, like Logan Thomas really isn't going to cut it, to be honest with you. So, um, adding another weapon to this offense alongside Curtis Samuel and Jahan Dotson and Terry McLaurin and adding Dalton Kincaid in there, the receiving core for the commanders next season can look very, very big or very scary, as they say with Scary Terry. Moving down to number 17, the Pittsburgh Steelers. I have them taking offensive tackle Darnell Wright from Tennessee. Main, the big issue with uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers this season, this past season has mainly been offensive line. Um, it's kind of the reason why Najee Harris had a really bad year. Um, and the I just don't really like Chukumba Okorafor at right tackle. I just, I mean, I kind of do like it because it, it, it helps the Browns. But if I were a Steelers fan... You know, I want to change. Darnell Wright certainly presents that. He's got incredible size and insane strength. And he and even though he's a big dude, he's got a good foot slide. Um, sometimes he does have an issue with um, holding and being like a bear hugger than like a pusher at a point of attack. Usually you want to, as an offensive lineman, you want to get your hands inside um, to the chest. He kind of more goes outside, which is a, a big no-no because that's a hold. Um, he doesn't, and he also doesn't really finish well as a run blocker, but not only are we trying to get this for Najee, a, a tackle for Najee Harris's benefit, we're trying to get it for Kenny Pickett's, um, benefit and <clears throat> Darnold Wright's a fantastic pass blocker. So I have no issues with taking, um, Darnold Wright right here. You can make a case for Joey Porter Jr. If he falls here because most Steelers and Joey Porter Sr. went to the Steelers or whatever. Uh, but I feel like uh, the Steelers love Darnell Wright, and I'm, I get it, not making predictive picks, but I think Darnell Wright is the smart pick here to really establish this offensive line. Moving on to number 18, the Detroit Lions. Uh, I have them taking defensive lineman Brian Breesey. So you're thinking right now, like, two defensive linemen in one round? That's a bit crazy, my man. Well, to, if you think about it, you know, the Detroit Lions, you know, they got a really, really good um, future with they got a really good future with their edge rushers yes they got Aiden Hutchins they got James Houston Tyree Wilson if they draft him he's he's a good enough guy that he can slide inside and he can play to the B gap but they don't really have a guy in the middle that can bolt that can bully the center who can bully the center Brian Breesey he's athletic he's broad he's got he can withstand double teams extremely well and he's great in the run because of his broader frame um, though he could use more work as a pass rusher and with shed techniques. Uh, as a Lions right now, I wouldn't draft him um, based off his pass rushing. I want a guy that's just going to stuff the run, and Brian Brisey brings that. So when you're looking at it on paper, 
you have a possible um, you have a possible front four of Aiden Hutchinson, Tyree Wilson, Brian Breesy, and um, and who who else? Uh, well, well, the Lions run like a three four, I believe. So it might be a little different, but I think that you know you bring in a guy like Tyree Wilson, and that that is pretty good for them. And you get a guy in the middle, especially like Brian Breesy, you know, that can stop the run, which Lions had a bit of a trouble with last season. It could re- it could really work runners for them. Moving to number 19, which would have been the Tampa Bay Buccaneers pick. However, due to the trade, this is Philadelphia's pick. I have them taking Miles Murphy, an edge rusher from Clemson. Murphy, he's got a great motor, super athletic, good first step, and can finish when he's in the pocket. These are all traits that GM Howie Roseman loves with defensive linemen. We know that Howie Roseman loves to stack the defensive line. He did it this past season, brought in Hassan Reddick, Josh and you got guys like Josh Sweat and Fletcher Cox and <clears throat> and Brandon Graham still. So why not add to it with an uber-athletic guy like Miles Murphy? And it could just continue to add to the absolute monstrosity that is the Eagles defensive line. He does have a bit of issues um, varying his rush angles. His tackles will be quick to catch on the bull rush with a long arm move. But for a guy sitting behind... But, you know, you know, Brandon Graham's coming to, like, the tail end of his career. So I think that um, once Brandon Graham retires, it'll be Miles Murphy's time to step up and be that guy for the Eagles um, um, alongside Hassan Reddick. And he could be really good, you know, sitting behind and just learning the defense and improving. I like that pick for them. For the Seattle Seahawks, number 20, I have them taking wide receiver Jordan Addison out of USC. Um, if you want to give... If you, if you want to make the pick at quarterback, you know, it's there. But if you want the best possible outcome, which is A, um, a surrounding Geno Smith with weapons, and B, giving uh, a future quarterback uh, better help, then you'd probably want a guy like... Uh, you probably want a guy like another receiver. And Jordan Addison is that guy I think could be really good for them because he's so versatile to the where he can play outside or inside. And you can and obviously DK Metcalf's an outside receiver. And heck, you can mix and match Jordan Addison and Tyler Lockett in different formations. He's got good speed and agility. He's got great route running through his acceleration and his quick movements. Um, his, he kind of struggles when trying to make the contested catches and he's guard, when he's guarded by defenders. But, you know, if he's blazing downfield past guys, then I don't really see a big issue in that. And, you know, um, for the present day, it gives um, Geno Smith another weapon alongside Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. And for a future quarterback, you know, whomever they may draft, it sets them up really nice for the future. For the LA Chargers at number 21, I have them taking... Uh, Texas running back B. John Robinson. I truly believe that the Chargers are going to trade uh, Austin Eckler sometime soon. I don't know when that might be. Heck, I don't have my phone on me right now. I can't see anything. They might have traded Eckler as I was talking about this. But anyways, I do believe that they're going to move on from Eckler. And I think t- B. John, if they move on from Eckler, B. John Robinson is the pick to make here, 100%. Do I think that B. John Robinson will be here? No. But he's but if he is here, the Chargers will be fools not to take him if they end up trading Eckler or even if they don't. <clears throat> he's got great he's got almost everything you want in a running back. 
The only problem is that he's falling because running backs are becoming a much less valuable position in the NFL, which sucks because Bijan Robinson is an absolute monster. He's got great build at 5'11", 215, agile feet. His flight and fight, his fight and flight variation can make defenders fear this man. Basically, what that means is if he if he wants to beat you with speed, he can beat you with speed. If he wants to bowl right through you, he can do that. He led the he led FBS last year, or he led NCAA Division One FBS with like in broken tackles. He can do he can speed past you. He can bowl right through you. He can do whatever he wants. His only issue to me is he needs to relax a little bit on searching for the big runs all the time. Just just take what's given to him. But what really sells me on this pick for the Chargers is he's also not only is he a great runner, he also has really good passing or catch or catching ability. So if you're able to um I thought I heard a noise. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, if you're able, uh, if you're able, to, if the Chargers are able to move on from Austin Eckler um, and take Bijan Robinson, you know you're getting a much better runner than Austin Eckler, and you're getting a guy who's also really good as a receiving back. You know, so you move on a guy, and you kind of create more, um, you kind of create more money. So you don't have to pay him, and then you take a guy like Bijan Robinson, who's got insane talent and provides positional need. Moving now to number twenty-two, the Baltimore Ravens. I have them. Um, addressing wide receiver here you can make a case of them addressing somebody up uh, some other position but like wide receivers the wide receiver is certainly the pick here because you want to make lamar jackson happy i have them taking boston college as a flowers he's a slot guy but he can play with so much energy that he can play kind of anywhere he can play outside if he wants to he's got a sidestep press and he can fly to action with good acceleration and he attacks defenders very hard um he's fast and agile makes him a hard read uh, sometimes he's a bit over aggressive with his routes. He can rush them a little bit, and he's also make and he's very like hot and cold with his catches. He can make great catches, but he can also drop some bad ones. But with um, despite despite the Ravens signing Odell Beckham Jr., this the wide receiver is still a big need for the Ravens, and you really want to draft. Um, a good wide receiver or at least pieces around Lamar Jackson that make him want to stay. Zay Flowers is a guy that I truly think can help them out there. Number 23, Minnesota Vikings. I have them taking quarterback Deontay Banks out of Maryland. Uh, their secondary was an absolute mess last season. It was just really bad. Like, when they were getting pieced up um, by the Colts, like, it, it you knew it was an issue. Uh, and I like Deontay Banks here. Uh, it feels like they could go something else. Like there have been cornerbacks, like you know, there have been other quarterbacks, like um, rumored here. Like there's uh, Emmanuel Forbes from Mississippi State, Julius Brent from Kansas State. There's a ton of guys you could take here, but I like Deontay Banks' athleticism. Uh, his combat performance was incredible. He ran a four-three-five. He jumped a uh, 42-inch vertical and an 11-4 broad jump. He's got a great blend of size, strength, and athleticism. His, he got really good hips that allow him to glide all over the field. And he's also he was also varied in coverages when he played at Maryland. However, he could improve the route anticipation, anticipating routes and reacting more quickly to the ball at the break point. Uh, but you know, this is like the this is like something that the Vikings really need. They need they need defensive back help really badly. And if they don't get it, um, you know, it could be end up being really bad for the Vikings. There could be a chance that the Vikings trade up uh, a lot of picks to get Will Levis, but, you know, we'll wait and see till the draft night and see what happens. 
Number 24, I have the Jacksonville Jaguars taking Brian Branch. Safety out of Alabama. This is probably the most safe pick here. Um, Jacksonville has a need with filling up their secondary to make it really complete because they do have a lot of good players there, such as Tyson Campbell at corner, uh, Rayshon Jenkins and Andre Sisco as safeties. They also got another good corner. I forget his name, though. I apologize to you if you're listening to this. But Brian Branch is an incredible guy, and he's a super safe pick. You could put him anywhere on the field and because he's experienced with nickel so much playing at Alabama – and he also has range to play at safety, and he's got inst- and good instincts. He's quick and strong to match up with big receivers and tight ends. He's got a good mind for the game. Very safe pick here for the Jaguars, and it sure is up their secondary. Number 25 with the New York Giants. I have them taking a wide receiver, giving Daniel Jones another weapon, and TCU wide receiver Quentin Johnson. He's got Quentin Johnson has an insane frame. He's great vertical threat, good catch radius. However, while he does have a good catch radius because of his size, this past this past season, he really needs to show up his he really had issues with consistent high point catching. It was a lot lower than you expected it to be. He also could use more route variation, but when you have guys like Darius Slayton and uh Wandale Robinson and all those guys, you know, they got the New York Giants have a ton of weapons to be able to um help Daniel Jones out. And you give up a big play receiver that he can rely on, like Quentin Johnston, along with Darren Waller. You know, Daniel Jones could be up for a really big season. Dallas Cowboys at number 26. I have them taking defensive lineman from Michigan, Mozzie Smith. Um, while Dallas had one of the best pass rushes and edge rush win rates in the NFL this past season, their run defense was awful. It was so bad. And I definitely think, like, there's not many run defenders that you could pick here. Like, could they trade up for Jalen Carter? Yes, but it's going to take a lot because they do love Jalen Carter, but it's going to be really hard for them to trade up for him. So, you know, at this point, you could probably you probably have to pick a guy like maybe Mazi Smith or, hell, even Keanu Benton from Wisconsin. But I kind of like Smith more here because he's much better as a run stuffer. He's got a rare blend of size and quickness. He punches and controls with ease. He kind of struggles to maintain movement of blockers and needs to become more consistent with taking double teams and securing his gap. So that's, like, his inconsistencies do make me believe that Keanu Benson is a bit of a better pick here. But I'm sticking with Mazzy Smith. I think, like, as a, he's a big guy. He's got really good size, as I, uh, as I just said. And he's got really good quickness to be able to, he just needs to work on, um, he just needs to work on becoming more consistent with taking on double teams. And the Dallas Cowboys could have themselves a really good run suffer. Moving on to 27, uh, the Buffalo Bills. I have them taking interior offensive lineman Osiris Torrance from Florida. Uh, Dallas could pick him one pick before this, to be honest with you. But uh, he's more experienced with right guard, to be honest with you. And Zach Martin has that position filled. So I don't know if left guard would be a big, you know, and I don't know if he might go. If they might put him at left guard, but if not, I have the taking. I have the Bills taking Osiris Torrance right here. He definitely uses his size in his favor. He uses his push rather than leverage and drive to run block, which is which is very well because it shows that he's able to use what he has um, to his effect to his benefit. He has a bit. His, his foot quickness is a little limited, and it makes path blocking an issue. Um, against more fluid and quick rushers, but considering Buffalo has such a pressing need for offensive line in this draft, you know, drafting the best uh, interior offensive lineman right here, surefire pick right here. 
<clears throat> for the Cincinnati Bengals, um, I had them taking originally Dewan Jones, an offensive tackle from Ohio State. However, uh, Dewan Jones' lack of athleticism uh, kind of swayed me a little bit. Now, he is big, yes, but I feel like a better pick for the Bengals here is offensive tackle Anton Harrison from Oklahoma. Harrison has good size and length. He does, uh, at, like Osiris Torrance, he does a good job using his strengths to minimize his weaknesses. He's able to neutralize defenders with good positioning. However, he lacks good athleticism and pop and drive for run blocking. But, you know, for the Bengals, although run, although you have Joe Mixon, we're trying to protect, we're, we're trying to protect Joe Burrow. You know, and and you have a guy like Anton Harrison who he he kind of struggles athletically, but he's a much better athlete. He's much more athletic than Dewan Jones, and he's a very good pass blocker. You know, he's able to um, Dewan uh, Anton Harrison's able to uh, as I said, he's able to use his strength to his strength to minimize his weaknesses. He's able to use better positioning and all of that. I think that Anton Harrison is a much better pick here than Dewan Jones. Moving on to uh, number 29, the New Orleans Saints. I have them taking Kalijah Kansi, defensive lineman from Pittsburgh. Their pass rush and their run defense was absolutely awful. So when they take Kalijah Kansi here, they kind of take like two for a price of one. Um, Kansi's undersized, but he's explosive and he's productive. His lack of mass and length will uh, hurt in the run defense, but his first step quickness allow him to make plays downfield um, in the pocket twitchy feet and he can reset his points of attack he's got insane leverage motor but his size is not going to define him he will make a difference immediately as a run def as a pass rusher however there will come it will be a bit of a struggle to adjust to run defending but i think eventually he'll get there so with new orleans having a poor pass rush and having bad run defense i think they're getting two for the price of one eventually when drafting Kalaja Kansi. Moving on to the second last pick of the draft, at number 30, I have the Philadelphia Eagles taking linebacker Diane Henley from Washington State. This past offseason, uh, TJ Edwards left in free agency for the Chicago Bears, which brings in N'Kobe Dean, the rookie from last season, into the middle linebacker role. However, I think the uh, Eagles could use another linebacker here just to sure things up. Henley has good speed and he's very tough. Though he's though he does make very bad cognitive decisions, he struggles to um, with reading keys and anticipating the play. But his speed and ability to you know make the play, wrap that up, and with his fantastic range, he can step down to challenge run blockers, which is also pretty impressive. But and he's got good size, at six foot one, and he's two twenty five. But what's really gonna hurt him is his lack of movement and recognition. But I think, you know, with e the Eagles having a much pressing need for linebackers, with TJ Edwards leaving, you know, you put in um, you put in Diane Henley there to help out N'Kobe Dean, and I think, you know, it could help them out. Final pick in the first round here, I only it was only a one-round mock draft. If I was here for too long, like, if I was here for any longer, I, I, I just couldn't do it. But final pick of the, or the first round, 31st pick, Kansas City Chiefs. I have them taking Nolan Smith and Edge from Georgia. Uh, Nolan Smith ha is a uh, much lower weight, but his toughness delays that. Smith, he's both effective as both a run defender and a pass rusher. He's got good technique and leverage that allows him to move off his spot hard. He's very disruptive in the gap. Gets off the mark. The only thing that I have issue with him is that he kind of lacks counters and balance to consistently get to the pocket. But with the Chiefs having um, released Frank Clark 
And, yeah, they did get George Koloftis, and George Koloftis was very productive for them this past season. I think they could use more at um, edge rusher. And Nolan Smith, the combine he had, can certainly um, shore that up. And I think it's a good pick for the Chiefs here to shore up their defense with a very athletic, very talented player. Before I... Um, before I sign off on this, I do want to give a shout-out to NFL.com on these comparisons. Or not these comparisons, but rather these um, these player assessments because I literally, like because of school, I have literally no time to assess players myself. And, and, and plus, I'm not like a draft scout. I don't know the ins and outs of it. I do want to shout out um, NFL.com for that and also Brett Coleman uh, on YouTube. That's K-O-L-L-M-A-N. Um, Brett Coleman is an incredibly, incredibly gifted mind um, in the NFL in the NFL world. Uh, I think he worked with, I believe, Sports Illustrated, if, if Sporting News, one of those, or maybe something else. But he was an incredibly influential guy that I listened to a lot and got a lot of ideas from. Uh, so yeah, without, you know, NFL.com and Brett Coleman, I couldn't make this mock draft. Uh, with that being said, <clears throat> uh, this is going to end uh, quite a long episode three of the CBiz show, but nonetheless, I had fun here, um, sharing you guys the whole bunch of news and my own mock draft. Very excited for the upcoming NFL draft. And I'm going to bring you guys a recap on that, uh, on Friday, along with a more playoff action and all that. I'm very excited for that, and just wanted to remind you guys, the Friday episode will be my last one for at least a couple weeks as I prepare for college finals and moving back uh, home to Erie, Pennsylvania. So, and But once I move back to Erie and um, I get everything settled, episodes will be back up and running as usual, and it'll just kind of go on until there. Uh, with that being said, this is the end of the CBA show. This is the end of episode three. I thank you all for listening so much. If you made it to the end of this two-hour-plus-long podcast, I love you to death. I truly love you. And <laughs> with that being said, this is Colin Bish signing off. Have a, everybody, have a good night.